0: Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm David Bax. I'm Scott Nye. Are you sure? Well, you said you were going to introduce
1: me, and and that wasn't much of an introduction. That was just a cue. You're right. I wasn't ready.
0: uh, I I went into autopilot. didn't realize what was going to come out. But uh, that's right. Yeah, Tyler's not here, just like I wasn't here. Uh last week uh we're we're trading off just this two weeks, so we're gonna go back to normal <laughs> after this. Um but uh I wanna thank our, our guests um from the last two weeks when I wasn't here. Uh who were they, David? Uh well two weeks ago it was someone from Tyler's class. His name yeah. was Dave. Yeah. Pratt? I don't know. Platt? Dave is all I got. I have now forgotten, as we were talking about beforehand, I'm having Wi-Fi trouble, so I can't look it up. Uh, and then uh, for the bonus episode that went up on the day of the Oscar nomination, Stephen Farber joined uh, Tyler to talk about the Oscar nomination. So that was uh, terrific. Very uh, exciting. Yeah, I hope uh, I hope sometime we get to give it, have him back when I'm around. Um, but that was, that was great. Uh, thanks to both of them. Um, Scott, you're here uh, not just because you're the third member of Battleship Retention. And seemingly live here this month. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Um, But you're here because you and I uh, spent uh, about five days at uh, Sundance. The snowiest, coldest days of my life. It was crazy. Yeah. Like at, At first, I was like, oh, David, you're being a wimp. You're just like... SoCal acclimated, but then I was like, "No, this is bad." Like, yeah, because last
1: it's... year we talked about how, like, once we got there, you know, it was cold, but we acclimated pretty fast. Yeah, and this year I was like, "Am I just getting old? <laughs> what's what's happening well, here?" It, it
0: basically, it essentially didn't not snow right at any point no. <laughs> while it was we were there, the entire time. Uh, And the, I guess the day, the sun Sunday. I left late on Monday. You left Tuesday morning. Yeah, right. Um, Sunday it was, oh, it was essentially a blizzard. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, and Monday as well. Actually, now that I'm Monday, one day was the real bad day. Actually, I'm getting my days mixed up because I uh, left one screening. We'll talk about the movies uh, later. I left one screening, and there was a, uh, a press industry industry screening of who I really wanted to see. And I was like, uh, I, and I missed the shuttle. Like I didn't right. get because uh, the Eccles. You don't step out right into the shuttle. You have to walk all the way across a yeah. high school parking lot to get to the shuttle stop. And I missed the shuttle. And I was like, all right, I know I can walk to uh, the, where the president screenings are from here. I did it last year. It's a long
1: walk in that weather, but in that weather, like
0: against the wind and especially (laughs) like, I don't know if you made that walk, But the sidewalk at one point sort of splits off from the side of the road and goes through, essentially, it's almost like a little park-type area. Okay. I thought so, I did make that walk, but I don't remember that. Uh, uh, so at one point, I, well, maybe if you were on the other side of the street, yeah. Houston. But so at one point, I just felt like I couldn't, I could no longer see the road. I could right. no longer really hear it, even though it was probably only uh, 15 yards from me. And the wind was just blowing, and all I could see was like I was trying to look down to make sure I stepped in the footsteps that were right. <laughs> in front of me, which were already filling up with the snow. And I was like,
1: fuck. Well, <laughs> that's the other thing is that the snow was coming down, but it was also melting pretty fast during the day. So there's huge puddles everywhere.
0: It was yeah, terrible. That's right. That's right. Um, so, uh, don't go to Sundance. It was <laughs> Uh, uh no uh it, it was it was a blast and we're going to talk about it uh in detail we're going to talk specifically about the movies that we saw but we'll um also add some color here and there with the other uh fun experiences that we had um but first i want to uh tell you about our sponsors <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. And there is also a special offer, I almost said officer, which I always do. Uh, there's a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com/slash/Battleship to redeem now. And Scott, while you're here, while I have your attention, I also want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com. You lost my attention. (laughs) No, Uh, please, everyone pay attention. Uh, This is very important. Tweaked uh, is a fantastic company that makes fantastic, professional quality earbuds in a variety of very stylish styles and very colorful colors. Uh, They look great. They sound great. I use them. Tyler uses them. I don't know if Scott has has a pair. Um, I do. They're very good
1: on the plane because they cancel noise quite well.
0: There you go. Uh, Another ringing endorsement. Um, for tweakedaudio.com earbuds they're available at a low low price over at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you'll get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension getting the smile and confidence
1: you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Scott, how have you been since the last time we... Had you on the show two weeks ago? Uh, well, two weeks ago, man, I feel like so much has happened the last two weeks. But I was just about to get sick that next day, and then I got better, and then I got sick again over Sundance. So I've been—it's been, it's been a nothing but sick kind of January. But uh, Sorry. I did get to go to Sundance, so that was a blast. Yeah, nothing um, wrong with that. No, I was—you I, know—I wasn't looking forward to as much this year. But by the end of it, I wanted to leave even less than last year. I feel like there's still so many films that I could have seen that I didn't.
0: I guess from that point of view, I yeah, I wish I could have seen more films, but I I
1: was I was ready to leave. Well the weather t- was quite off-putting, don't yeah. get me wrong.
0: And uh well no, I mean you're not married yet, but <laughs> I miss my wife.
1: I missed my fiance too. I hope she doesn't listen to this. Oh, she might.
0: <laughs> um so, yeah, uh, we'll talk about the movies we saw, but, um, what are, what are your other favorite things about Sundance or about going
1: to Utah? Um, well, I mean, last year I really enjoyed just walking around the town, but as mentioned, that wasn't really a joy this year. Yeah. Um, cause it is when the sun's out, when the snow's on the ground, it's super pretty. It's like yeah. a little Christmas village town. Um, you can see the ski slopes and people are out having a good time and it's just a jolly place to be. Um, Other than that, uh, I didn't do as much social stuff this year. I know you did, but I usually... Last year, I found out all all the social stuff through Twitter, but because the inauguration was going on and things were hell, I just stayed off Twitter for most of the weekend. When you say social stuff, what do you mean? I mean, like, going out for drinks with people or dinners or stuff. Yeah,
0: I I, I went out to one dinner okay. with Angie Han and we ran into, uh, Jason Bailey, right. there. uh, shout outs all around. But as far as that, my other like quote unquote social stuff was mostly sitting at the double tree bar with other writers, <laughs> not talking, just everyone writing, like everyone writing reviews or, right. or doing whatever they, uh, needed to do. There's, was, there's was one point when there were like three or four of us writing while the Packers Falcons game was on. And then there was, um, Matt from Collider, who's apparently a Falcons fan, I learned. And so he's just staring at the TV. So it's like four bloggers <laughs> blogging and every once in a while, yes.
1: And a partridge in a pear tree.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, you say social, but like, this is the difference between, you know, Comic-Con. I'm like, I like the, you know, I go to the convention during the day. I go out at night right. I Drink with people. I meet with people. You know, I, I, I try to get my writing. If I'm, if I'm doing any writing, I get it done, um, uh, during the daytime. Uh, but, with Sundance, there are parties. Maybe once I go for a few more years, maybe I'll get into the groove of that sort of thing. But really, I'm kind of there just to see movies and write about them, and that's kind of more fun.
1: Yeah, no, I, that is largely my tax as well. I actually did get invited to some parties this year, but ended up not going. Because, yeah, yeah. You, know, you I, can I, see movies
0: instead. I don't yeah, know. exactly. And if you're not seeing movies, then you need to write or sleep or eat. Sleep um, more
1: over than anything.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, I didn't eat much. There were a couple points at this. And I, I had some free time and I was like, all right, I'm going to eat a meal. But a lot of times it was just grabbing croissants or apples or cups of coffee or bags of chips in between screenings. Yeah. I think, yeah, you, uh, you saw me wolf down a hot dog in the
1: two minutes before a <laughs>
0: French world war, war one
1: tragedy was yeah. about to start. You really went to town on that thing. You looked like you hadn't eaten in days.
0: Yeah. Cause when I like, it was the movie's going to start and I got to get my notes out and right. I just got like, I got to finish this hot dog. You got your
1: routine, man. <laughs> Can't Let the um, hot dog get in the way.
0: Yeah. Um but the other thing uh was that happened during during Sundance this year was the and this it happened all over the world and was very touching, the uh the women's march. Yes, I did go to
1: that very briefly.
0: Uh I went even more briefly. <laughs> you and I both have the same experience, I think, where um traffic was not moving. No and we both decided all. to walk, but you had left before I did, so you got to see more of it. Um yeah, I walked probably forty minutes and I was after spending ten to fifteen minutes not moving on the bus. No, so I just spent an hour not moving on the bus <laughs> and then I walked back out of there. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah. And then I, I also left my gloves on the bus, which is a bummer. Oh man, um, you were gloveless that whole weekend. Um, after the, after the March I was, yeah. yeah, because I was like, like I said, the bus wasn't moving and then we were like, pulling away from a stop. So I know I'm contradicting myself because obviously <laughs> we're moving, but I was like, I'm just going to walk. So I right. like jumped out of the bus, like right before the doors were closing. And then I like went to put my gloves on and I went, Oh, fuck me. <laughs> fuck me. And a Sundance uh, volunteer said, "I <laughs> he was like super cheery. Right. And he was like, "Did you lose something? And I was like, I just left my gloves on the fucking bus. And he was like, ah, gloves and umbrellas. Easy come, easy go. <laughs> I, I, I tweeted this, but, like, I go to, you know, enough festivals and conventions yeah. that I have a lot of respect for volunteers at these things. Yeah. But I have to say, no disrespect to the volunteers at other Festivals and conventions. Sundance volunteers are something
1: special. Oh, yeah. They're a class they're on for sure. Yeah. They're they, terrific. They actually know what's going on, which most volunteers and most events don't. <laughs> yes. You know, thanks. God bless them for being out there, but they have no clue what's happening ever. But these people do, and they know when the buses are coming, they know when the movies are starting, and they always have a good smile on their face. And yeah. Happy to be there.
0: Yeah. There's, yeah it, take, it takes a certain special kind of someone to be a Sundance volunteer. Um, I'm not sure where my dog is it's making so much noise, but I'm assuming the mic's not catching it. and not picking it up. No, he howled a
1: lot worse than this last time I was here to oh, record right. and it was, <laughs> it didn't pick up at all.
0: Um, that's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then the final thing before we talk about the movies, I have to bring up the, uh, the thing that I hate at every festival. Uh-oh. I love the I love the volunteers. Here's right. the thing I hate at every festival, the festival bumper. Oh yeah. That plays before every movie. Now I will say, As far as these, they're all awful. Um, but as far as these go last year, Sundance one was one of the least intrusive. I don't even remember it. I think that's the point. (laughs) Like, because when we're seeing, you know, you saw 17 movies, I saw 14 movies. Like you're seeing the same thing at the beginning of every movie. It gets, it's really starts to wear really like
1: narratively driven this one. And so it like took a weirdly long time and had this very catchy music that was always stuck in my head. Uh, and yeah, it was always the same one. Which, like at AFI Fest, it was a different one. They had like three or four that they cycled between. That's right. That's so right. So that was yeah. kind of a good way to do it. But then this it was just the same damn thing. And then the after the bumper, they have the credits of the people who made the movie and the credits of the people who sponsored the festival. Yeah, the whole thing took like a minute and a half.
0: Yeah, and it, and this is it happens at every festival, and it, it's just like I guess I don't know. There's got to be got to be a better way, David. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, But at least it wasn't, I I think, um, now you were at your first LA Film Fest this past summer. Yeah. That had a bumper plus a Los Angeles Times because they were like the major sponsors. So it was two things that were too long that played at the beginning of every
1: movie. I only went to like four movies actually at the festival, so that didn't wear as much.
0: Um, But yeah, I've gone to enough festivals now to like the first time I see a bumper, I'm like, what about this? Am I going to hate by this time tomorrow? <laughs> and then even more so in, in four days time, yeah. uh, four or five days time. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Why I brought that up just to say it's a, it's a facet of festivals
1: that nobody really talks about. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say positive facet of festivals All right. that I, I, I know, I feel like I've had this conversation with people before. I don't know <clears throat> if, I've, if I've had it on the podcast, but I feel, I and mean, maybe it's just my luck and it's gone the other way a couple times as well, but I feel like there's a certain kind of festival magic. I talked about like leaving the screening of the Eccles to make it to the other one. Right. And like, you know, um having very little time and, so, and but I got there and it was fine. And I yeah. sat down. There's a festival magic where sometimes I feel like there's no way I'm going to make this screening. And I try, and I feel like most of the time I end up making the screening.
1: I, the only screening in two years of Sundance that I've gotten shut out of was birth of a nation last year because I sh- wanting to show up like 10 minutes before it started which right. is foolish but this <laughs> yeah. year I didn't get shut out of anything including call me by your name which I literally ran to two minutes after it started
0: yeah and that, that was the one that I had um fought through uh you know the fought the elements oh yeah uh to to get to uh and I and uh, I was so, so I thought for sure it was going to be full because I got there like 10 minutes before. Uh, and they're like, yeah, go on in. Yeah. And I literally had like ice <laughs> in my beard. Like I'm, I came in looking like,
1: I don't know. Uh, Look like you belong in Walking Out.
0: Uh, yeah, I was going to make uh, the Revenant uh, yeah, joke. Yeah, but yeah the Something same movie people have actually seen. Good call. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I did see Walking Out and I saw a bunch of other stuff and we'll talk about that in a second. I want to real quick, because Tyler and I are trying to do this more, uh, point out uh, what's going on on the website uh, right now things that you can, things that you can check out. Um, Sarah is continuing, continuing her year long uh, watch through of the, battleship retention voter uh listener voted uh top 100 she's in, in the still in the 90s so with uh with amelie and, and some other stuff uh the top are, are it's 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 battleship retention you know year end season from it sure is from january 1st uh through the oscars um so top 10s are popping up uh including including rudy's um there's a ton of sundance reviews um that you can check out uh our friend jason's short film starring pat healy and the voice of bill dwyer uh desk job is now available on vimeo we post, posted posted uh, posted that up there um uh it was dave platt was our guest there to you Expo. go uh, so i had to write the second time um and the uh the oscar nominations um mariah's top 10 west is uh on his musical notation podcast did an episode on uh the music of mel brooks movies um so yeah there's uh all kinds of all kinds of fun stuff uh going on uh including uh new reviews this week well not new i reposted my review of gold because it went wide and uh you posted a review of the salesman sure you did just just today i have not
1: read it yet it's very short you could probably read it right now and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what between me talking <laughs> no one would notice you did
0: um so that's stuff you can check out on the website we hope that you do uh we put Uh, a lot of time into the website especially i would say the two people sitting at this table put a lot of time into the website um we all work hard david yeah no (laughs) no i I didn't mean to say that tyler is slacking off i mean like tyler does awesome things for the podcast and for like the getting you know anytime you hear a sponsor or whatever like that that's tyler doing that whereas you and i uh
1: focus on the written part of battleship retention a little bit more well you're even being generous and lumping me in with you but i'll take it Okay.
0: All right. Um, Well, I already said let's get into it, shall we? Uh, So let's say that we are into it. And we're going to go alphabetically, just like we've done uh, in festivals past, um, which means the first two movies are are
1: yours and yours alone. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah, the, the first one is, ironically, one of the last I saw. Uh, it's called Beach Rats. Uh, listeners of the preview episode will be glad to know that I actually took notes this time before showing up here. So I have like director names and like stuff they've done before without having to search my brain for 20 minutes. Uh, so this is directed by Eliza Hitman. Uh, it is her second feature following. Uh, God damn it. I didn't write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it felt like love. I knew I'd remember it. Uh, is there a second feature following? It felt like love. Wait, which one is it felt like love? I haven't seen it. I don't know anything about it. I just okay. know that it made like a miniature splash two, three years ago. Um, this one centers on a young man, probably I'd say he's about 21. He was on a booze cruise at one point. I don't know how easy it is to sneak on those. He read to me as like 1920, but I assume he's about 21. Still lives at home. Doesn't really have anything going on. Just kind of hangs out with his friends at, you know, as the title suggests, at the beach. Um, just kind of killing time, getting high, doing the uh slacker 20 something thing uh-huh. but he's also taken an interest in uh cruising online for men to have sex with um which in the culture he is uh surrounded by isn't terribly welcome you get the sense that if he were to come out to anybody it would not be well received you know he might get kicked out of the house he certainly would be ostracized by his fellow meathead friends um but mm. he And so he feels a genuine sense of shame about what he's doing. And the actor who plays the main character, Harris uh, Dickinson does a really nice job of kind of building layers onto that without, you know, making it seem like the film is punishing him or like, it really seems like it's coming from him. You know, like he could be making different choices, but it's just a sense of self-loathing that he has built into himself. So in order to kind of avoid that and create an alibi for himself when he's making all these rendezvous, he also gets a girlfriend. Um, and so the film is kind of about him trying to make genuinely trying to make that relationship work because he feels like that's the way it should be going. Mm -hmm. But you know, he continually gets drawn back into Uh, this world of you know illicit hookups and he tries to mainly hook up with older guys so that they won't fall into a social scene but inevitably he strays from that too and just you know inevitably these worlds come crashing down on one another and collide in interesting ways without fully giving him away but it comes to a point where he definitely has to make a decision one way or the other um and it's really i mean you know i've never gone through this process myself but it felt like a very honest exploration of the push and pull one feels and establishing one's identity uh, especially in his position where you know he doesn't have like economic independence he doesn't have a lot of choices for where he can run um he just kind of is living his life and thought he could skate by on that but is having a Kind of actually confront himself for probably the first time and it's a really really strong movie um the director said up front that's really tough movie uh and you could kind of feel the tension in the audience around that um but i, I think people generally generally took to it and uh, i certainly did myself
0: um i'm glad you said the the director because i feel like we should point out as we go like which screenings we saw you know Because there's a public screening and the the press screening and the public screenings often have Q&As or introductions or or whatever. I feel like we should call out those those details. So this, I'm guessing, was a public screening.
1: This was. Yeah, Um, Um, it was, I think, the world premiere. I don't think it had shown anywhere else before. Um, So that was very exciting. Uh, and the director was there. You know, she gave a good introduction. I didn't stick around for the Q&A because I had other movies to see. I I know you hate staying around for Q&A's, period. In
0: general, I stayed. I, I don't think there was any one movie that I stayed for the entire Q&A for. Right. Well, except for we'll talk about Brilliant Syndrome when we get to it, because that was a uh, oh, right. very unique <laughs> oh, thing. I just said very unique. The thing that I always rail against. Uh, that was a unique case. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I did stick a little bit around a little bit for some of the Q&A's. Um if only so that I could text my wife the celebs that I saw. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good call. Uh, I actually like the Q and A's, but I just didn't have time for really any this year. Um so that was that. Um the next movie on our list is Before I Fall, which is actually getting a release in like two weeks or something. It comes out in February sometime. Um but it's this young adult adaptation that's kind of a groundhog day scenario uh set oh, okay. amongst high school girls. Um, the best basic premise is uh, Zoe Dutch it plays this girl who's like one of the popular girls at her school and has kind of a mean girls kind of crowd and as you might predict from a Groundhog Day scenario she eventually learns many lessons throughout the film um, but after it gets kind of through that initial setup which I don't know about you but all these kind of films that end up repeating some day over and over whether it be a groundhog day thing or a time travel thing that initial day is a drag to get through because <laughs> you keep trying to figure out like what are the details we're going to keep coming back to oh i see what you're saying yeah, you feel yeah. like the character they're establishing is not the person you're going to end up spending that much time with it always feels like there's such a vast departure that happens pretty quickly um so i don't maybe yeah. it's just me
0: but did you know going in what the what the yes, premise was okay um, so, you know, that affects things, I guess. There are a number of movies that I saw this year that I didn't know what the premise oh, yeah, same here. Uh, going in was. Um, uh, and I'm sorry I won't be able to preserve that for everyone because we're going to talk about the Alas. movies here. Uh, but it it, um, it is it is fun. That's one of the fun things about going to a festival, especially a festival like Sundance, as opposed to AFI Fest. Um, as much as I love AFI Fest or have mixed feelings. Um, <laughs> but a festival like Sundance where, you know, 12 of the 14 movies that I saw premiered at Sunday. Right. Uh, you know, and so people don't know, uh, how, what, you know, or, or if you, it's easy to avoid, I guess. Well, yeah, especially if you're going
1: is. in based on director or stars or whatever, which you, is usually what I'm, yeah, exactly. You're not looking at the premise at all. So,
0: um, um but, now this person, uh, the director of before I fall, yeah. uh, her last film was called nobody walks. Right. Um, and I hated it. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know if you saw it.
1: No, I didn't okay. know her work at all. Um, what I was going to say, though, is that once they kind of get past this establishing stuff, I think they really latch on to the terror of experiencing the same day over and over, oh, okay. which, like, these stories usually present, I think, either the whimsy or the unbelievability of it or something, but this, you really get the sense that she's, like, trapped and she's starting to freak out about what's happening to her, um, which I think is a different kind of note to play and I think one that fits with it being about a 17 or so year old girl, um, that there's a sense of almost victimization there, I guess, um, that I think ends up being really strong and, you know, I'm kind of a romantic and a sucker. So when it gets into the life lesson stuff, I found it genuinely moving by the end. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a a pretty strong little film and much stronger than most YA adaptations I've seen so far.
0: All right, let's move on to uh, the first one that you and I have both seen. Yeah. Uh, I will start talking, though, because I was at the world premiere. Uh, Ooh la la. And, it, well, and there's a story here, as, as you know. Um, this, we're talking about Kate Shortland's Berlin Syndrome, um, which is, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know how much. I, I Like I said, I only saw 14 movies, but this is definitely a top five of the 14 for me, uh, maybe a top four. Um uh, and I know you were a fan uh, as well, but, um, the, the premiere had, uh, had, had an issue. Well, first there was a minor, like almost foreshadowing, uh, of there always is w- what was to come, which had nothing to do with the present presentation or everything. Or, but this was at what's called the mark, which is the something, something recreational center. Right.
1: Yeah. I was just trying to remember what it is, but I have no I idea. I can't
0: remember. Yeah. Um, but and it is, this is a functioning like rec center like a gym and like where the where the um, screening is is half a basketball court which oh is really like, I never yes um, I know I didn't notice either I knew because uh, one of the people we were staying with works there oh yeah <laughs> um, and, and she told me that that's what it was um, and I guess they for this night because this was a, an eight thirty p.m. screening. um, of a movie that's, uh, you know, a little under two hours. So right. Uh, uh, just, yeah, I'm going to say it was probably 9:52 PM when suddenly a voice comes over and says, attention, Mark patrons, the Mark will be closing in eight, <laughs> eight minutes. Uh, clearly they're supposed to shut off the PA to that right. part of the thing. And they, um, were unable to, to do that. So in the middle of, the, in the middle of like, um, a very, uh, uncomfortable sex scene, um, we got this announcement that, uh, we better, you know, uh, get to the lockers and change into our street clothes or whatever, uh, <laughs> wrap up our pickup basketball games or whatever we were doing there. Uh, and then, so that, that was the the first thing. And then the big thing that happened, now this Berlin Syndrome is uh, is a, a, a sort of a, a psychological thriller type of, it's a thriller, I don't know, we'll talk about what it is, but it's a
1: tense movie. Yeah, which and, I didn't know when you were telling me this story. Yeah. And so I was like, well, you know, that's rough, but it's <laughs> not that big a deal. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, oh my God. And, and so the point that it, like, it's the
0: climax of the movie. The villain is stalking the heroine up the stairs with a crowbar in his hand, running his crowbar crowbar along the uh, the the railing uh, of the of the stairs, being very threatening. And then the DCP server crashed, and it just froze, and it was just frozen for a while. And uh, then they tried to play what I'm guessing was like a DVD screener that had a oh, watermark yeah. on it. And then for some that stopped. <laughs> well, it's like they started to tried to play that, it jumped ahead. Um, so we missed a whole part in between. They started showing that then it stopped. Then they tried to go back to the DCP and it jumped ahead even further. And suddenly so it gave away right. what we had missed completely. And everyone was like, Oh, um, and then they just like brought the lights up and they just started the Q and a, um, and Teresa Palmer, the, the star, um, whom I think the only thing I had seen her in that I can remember, uh, is a, not that great Australian movie called Wish You Were Here with Joel Edgerton. I did not see that. Um I don't know what that is at all. But she's been in other stuff. Um and I think she's uh sort of an up and comer. Um uh but she and then the um the the male star is Rex sorry Max Remelt,
1: I think is his name.
0: Okay. Uh, he's on Sense8. That's, oh. that's what people would know him from. I still have not seen
1: Sense8. Um neither I just saw the first episode, but uh oh, Teresa Palmer is also Knight of Cups. Oh. And Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, I remember her from Hacksaw Ridge. Okay, uh, I didn't see either
0: one of those. Um, so then T- Teresa Palmer essentially just like tells tells us the end of the movie. She's like, okay, so here's what happened. It's <laughs> coming up the stair, and then she she tells the end of the movie, and then they just just start doing the Q and A. And the first question is some guy who probably thinks he's a fucking hero stands <laughs> up and just starts shouting about, I don't understand why the programmer isn't down on his knees begging you for, for forgiveness. Jeez. That's what he said to, to Kate Shortland, the director. Yeah. And she's basically like, well, these things happen. And he's like, you're right, sir. I'm very sorry. But then, and then someone else was like, there, instead of a question they said i just want you to know because it's an australian and a german and the director's australian she's like, and he was like i just want you to know not all americans are rude like that <laughs> so it was a complete clusterfuck <laughs> uh and then like they do the q a and then they go oh we fixed it and they're like oh, okay i guess we're gonna watch the end of it again and so then we watched the end of the movie and then i honestly i don't know if they finished the q a right because i just i was like all right i it's been long enough. I've been through enough. Uh, I left. So um, that's the story. Let's talk about the movie itself. Why not? Which is one that I am glad I didn't know. I know the that's one. Of those of, that I don't
1: even know how to talk about because I didn't put, know anything about it. Yeah,
0: but when I, I mean, when I reviewed it, I tried to dance around a little bit, and I was like,
1: no, I can't. Like, yeah. I need to talk about. And I feel like it's going to be in the trailer and every review, every other review. Yeah, talk about it too. Yeah,
0: and also it's it goes. Further than that, oh, you know, that's sure. only just yeah. So basically, it's uh, an Australian tourist um, who is touring, uh, uh, sorry, start, she's touring Berlin or you know backpacking through Berlin or to through Germany ever alone, and she meets a uh Berliner uh, like JFK, a <laughs> Berliner, um, and they have a sort of uh, fling, you know, like you do when you're traveling alone through Europe. I'm sure um, <laughs> people tell me, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then she's she leaves the hostel she's staying at. She's staying over at his place for a couple nights. She's putting off her trip. Her you know She's supposed to move on to Dresden. Um, he gets up to go to work, uh, and she finds that she can't leave the apartment. She's been locked in, reinforced glass in the windows, no other inhabitants in the par- apartment building, and uh, you suddenly realize this sort of like what seemed like kind of a... I guess I, I say it seemed like a romance, but there are clearly hints of danger yeah but I, I got I pretty
1: caught up in it I was like but I, this I, is hot stuff good for her
0: yeah but I, I feel like well the music during the the consummation scene is like when that's true is not love music like right. it's very tense music and there's like a close-up you know when he's driving her around there's a close-up with the car door locking I don't know if you noticed. yeah I didn't know that. Uh, uh, that, I know that like there's a little there are little hints that it's not but but suddenly you realize oh this is uh, I guess I keep dancing around calling it a horror movie, but it's essentially a horror movie.
1: It's more—it's more of a thriller myself, but that's you know.
0: Uh, a but tiny I, you know, I saw t- um, someone said uh, Berlin Syndrome is essentially *Silence of the Lambs* if it were just about Buffalo Bill and Catherine, <laughs> whatever. Um, which is not entirely what true of the characters, but of the premise, right. I guess it is kind of like that. It is—it feels like a horror premise
1: classed up a little bit. But what I like about it, what you. Said about the premise and uh, is slightly different than what happens, which is that that first day that she gets locked in, she just assumes it's a mistake, and then they still got clubbing, and it's not till the next day, yeah, that she realizes something's up. Did you uh, realize it was a mistake? Um, I thought it was unusual, but I didn't. I was kind of with her. I don't know. I feel like I'm a paranoid person, and I'm like, I would. Oh, been... if I'd been in her situation, I would have been out of there. The second, I had. Yeah, but, uh, that's
0: exactly yeah what I would have yeah um yeah and then there's something that happens that i don't want to get into where she like has a chance to get the upper hand on him uh, right. uh that's a no pun intended but you don't know what i'm talking about so <laughs> that doesn't matter and uh m- my feeling in that situation is like no go for the jugular like don't don't try to wound the guy and escape like but she does pin him uh well uh, not well enough i'm <laughs> saying i'm saying i, I would have Uh, I would have put something through his through his windpipe and made sure that it was that it was done. That's (laughs) like I'm not leaving any. I guess she uh, wasn't
1: ready to go that
0: far. uh, I'm not leaving any loose ends (laughs) in that situation. If it's if it's me or you, it's you uh, is what I'm saying. But uh, no, um, let's talk about the movie (laughs) itself. Uh, It is. It's a
1: terrific movie. You you agree? It's super thrilling. I, you know, edge of my seat, gripping the armrest the whole deal the whole time. Uh, Yeah, I pretty much loved it. I don't really have any major complaints with it. Uh, It worked exactly like it was supposed to on me.
0: Um, Yeah. And and it's one of two very different movies I saw. Uh, You also saw the other one too. We'll talk about uh, in two movies from now Um, that uh, has a parallel about the way that um, men try to control the women in their lives. Uh, You know,
1: I am not sure uh, I see it as much with this one.
0: um, I mean, you don't say, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not an accident that the, that the, the captor is male and the captive is female, you know? And, 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 and he, it's not just that he keeps her captive. He also buys her the, the, the sort of the under things and the, uh, I guess it's the like and a friendliness the, there. That's a little in the nail polish that he wants her to wear. And he expects her, he, he I mean, if I were in this situation, I would not... I would like to think... I would not be very... What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, w- willing is not the word I'm looking for. Um, but uh, he expects her to go along. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he expects her not... He didn't, he, she's not chained to the wall the whole time.
1: Right. No, that's a good point.
0: He's trying to turn her into his idea of an ideal domestic partner. Yeah. And it's a very twisted, twisted thing. And, um, uh, I, yeah, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think the the parallels and parables here um, are a mistake, even though that's not all that's going on. There's also right. this whole thing about the sort of the uh, political history of, of Berlin. The the film takes place, not just in Berlin, but in the part that was East Berlin. Yeah. Um, and, and that the, the sort of the specter of the GDR is um, in ways overt and covert, I guess, <laughs> um, uh, present throughout you know, throughout
1: the the movie, you know, was the creepiest thing in this movie to me for reasons I cannot put my finger on. So I'm curious if you agree when she first finds that massage chair uh-huh. and it's just moving and it's old and torn up. There's something very creepy about that to me.
0: Uh, well, it reminded me of the massage chair at the end of breaking bad. I don't know if you watched. Oh yeah. Bad, totally. But that's the first thing I thought of was, <laughs> uh, yeah. The massage chairs are creepy. I they guess are. it's a shorthand for creepiness. Um, Let's move on to the movie. We've both already mentioned it. We both saw it. Uh, It was the last film that I saw at Sundance this year. Uh, Luca Guadagnino. Guadagnino. That's a great cast. um, Call Me By Your Name. And this is, um, I I, I told you as I go along, I was going to point out my three favorites and my one least favorite. Uh, This is my absolute favorite thing that I saw. It's my second favorite. At the the festival. I can't wait to find out what what your favorite is. You know. Um... Do I? When we get
1: there, you'll remember.
0: Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I, uh, I just, I just loved the, this movie. Um, there's, I mean, it, for it's festival movies tend to be shorter than other like Studio Prestige movies do you know what I'm talking about sometimes like, sometimes they can be much longer yeah that, i guess that's true <laughs> yeah but i'm saying most of the movies that i saw yeah. at sundance were in the 90 to 100 minute yeah range. well sundance
1: i think um, independent american films tend to be yeah, that length
0: yeah yeah because i guess that's true of la film fest too yeah, those all tend totally. to be around the same uh, the same length but it's from the same pool um whereas this is the movie is the second longest movie that i saw by 2 minutes um <laughs> and it Flew by. From, oh, for sure. Um, I wanted it to keep going. It's the kind of movie that you can just luxuriate in as the characters are doing, because they're
1: on a summer long vacation in northern Italy. Um, vacation of sorts It's a working vacation for the kid's father and the an army hammer.
0: Yeah, I guess. Um, but I mean, this is their this is their summer home. Oh, for that sure. They yeah. own like. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yes. The uh, Michael Stuhlbarg character is is working, but I don't want to give the impression that these aren't
1: fantastically rich people. Oh, which for they sure. Cl- no. They clearly are very rich people. There's no question they're enjoying themselves. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, because Michael Stuhlbarg plays what? I mean, I, like I said, I missed the first couple of minutes of this. So he's okay. like an archaeologist, I guess. Well, oh,
0: he they refer
1: to Armie Hammer refers to him as professor. Right. So so he's some kind of professor of history because they keep digging up these artifacts and going through. Yeah. But it's not, yeah, I guess archaeology would be part of but it. I guess It, it, is it all seems art. like it's more, yeah, it's art history. So yeah, but yeah. Um, and then our Army Hammer plays this guy who comes to join as his assistant, I guess, for a few months. Yeah. Six weeks, I think they say.
0: Oh, do they say that? Yeah. Because I yeah. was reading the book synopsis. It's okay. based on a novel. And the right. novel said, yeah, it, the book synopsis said six weeks. But this is when I was writing my review, I was like, do they say six weeks? And they the movie? do say six weeks. So I left that out. Yeah. Okay. So it is six weeks. Um,. Uh, so Michael Stuhlbarg is the professor. Um, the, the there's, a, his wife. And then they have one son, a 17 year old, um, m- named, uh, Elio, who is played by Timothy Chalamet, uh, who, um, Uh, we were, were you were talking, were you with us talking about him after the movie? Okay. This must've been before, uh, you joined the group. What do you know? Do you know him?
1: I was looking him up earlier. I think he was in interstellar.
0: Yeah. I think that's what a lot of, he was, he's the young Casey Affleck in interstellar. But, uh, as I'm one of a handful of people who saw and loved this movie last year, he's also, um, in miss Stevens. Oh, I did see that. I uh, forgot.
1: Yeah. He was in that.
0: Um, he's terrific in that. And I, I already, when I saw, his name in the opening credits, I immediately knew like, Oh, that's that kid from Miss Stevens who was, so, who was so good. Uh, and so he is now,
1: uh, one to one to watch. Oh, he's for me. exceptional in this movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of it is that, uh, Luca Guadagnino kind of, he knows how to, what is, Oh, there's a cat on my leg. That's what's going on. Uh, <laughs> he recognizes that long sections of film can just be about people, Taking pleasure in where they're in and the comedy they're in, and there doesn't have to be kind of overt conflict. So you know, the kid can just go play the piano because it's fun to play the piano, and he can go out with girls, and he lets the actor's charms comes come across a lot of the time without you know burying them in plot or, like I said, even overt conflict most of the time.
0: Uh, yeah, um, what I found so. Uh naturalistic and, and yet alien at the same time about this, this family and the way that they spend their times and time and the way that they talk to one another is that, and maybe it's just because I'm so accustomed to, you know, uh, our dramas about families being about secrets and lies, right. but like this family is like always completely honest with each other. Not in like a cruel way, N- not but necessarily they're very always, but they're well, very, well,
1: they're hey, let me finish. Okay.
0: <laughs> they don't lie to one another. Right they do keep secrets, but not what I'm trying to get to. Um, and I tweeted about this. So somehow I was able to make it fit into a horde 140 characters. (laughs) And yet now it's going to take me 10 minutes to get through it. But, um, generally in a movie, when characters are keeping secrets, it's, it's usually like a plot thing to, to create conflict. Right. Because at some point the secret will need to be revealed and that's, what's going to get you into the third actor or whatever, right? that sort of thing here. The secrets that are kept are all positive personal confidences and the act of sharing a secret or not necessarily a secret like we think of it, but a secret place, a place you go to read or uh, an attic where you go to read or have sex or listen to the radio. Like when you share a secret. And these secrets are, like I said, manifested in actual places. Often in this movie, um, it's a positive thing. It's the currency of the growing intimacy between two people that I'm yeah, sharing this sure. this place and this secret with you. And so I found it like interesting that, uh, and fascinating, that Luca. Guadagnino was able to make a two hour and 10 minute movie about people who were generally open with each other (laughs) in in most movies that would accelerate the plot too quickly. If people weren't hiding things uh, from one another, Um, he was able to luxuriate in this long runtime with characters who were generally very open and say what they mean. And therefore when there are things that they keep to themselves, they become all that much more powerful.
1: Yeah. But also, I mean, there is some tension in the secrets they keep and you wonder if the secrets will become more of an issue between them. Um, but what I was really thrilled by with the film is that Guadagnino steered into the skid of the things he's really good at, which, like I said, is honesty and people bonding and these magnificent environments in which they spend their time. Whereas his last two films, The Bigger Splash and I'm Love, like, felt the need to layer on tragedy to their plots eventually. Um, when what was so good about them was just the, the more positive emotions that were going on. So this is the movie you've been wanting him to make. Uh, I suppose so without even really thinking about it.
0: Yeah. Um, we didn't even really say what the story is, but Uh, Elio, might be for the better. uh What's in it might be for the better. It's hard yeah. to say. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. And there's a, there's a romance, I guess.
1: Yeah. I, I do also want to say that the cinematography, which I assumed was by his, like some cinematography he'd worked with before, because it looks so much like his last two films, but is actually by the guy who shot uncle Boon me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I saw and that. his, predictably gorgeous yeah it is
0: absolutely um let's move on to another one you and i both saw but we have differences of
1: opinion about because i really liked this slightly movie. yeah i'm still working through this one
0: uh i really like this movie um this is one that was not a premiere it premiered uh, at toronto west last, last fall um uh and it's nacho vigalando's colossal which if you don't know is the uh alcoholism drama that's also <laughs> a giant uh, asian monster movie in parts (laughs) to an
1: extent. Uh, I I think people have been overselling the monster part of this, maybe a little bit
0: in terms of like screen time. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but it needed, it needs to be a monster movie to have the climax that it has. And the climax is even though this has been a, personal drama about relationships and alcoholism the whole time, the climax is at the level of a monster movie, and I think that's one of the things I like about it so much is that he um, brought those two things together. He gave you the big, satisfying climactic battle of, uh, of a monster movie, but he also gave you the not quite entirely satisfying resolution to the alcoholism plot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Like he, he, you know, he, I think he says, I think what he's saying is like, it's cathartic to get through this breakthrough of the good monster defeating the bad monster. Right. Right. Uh, but there's also this little reminder at the very end. It's it's a laugh line, but it's also kind of a sad laugh. Not even a line. It's a it's a facial reaction um, that you get a laugh, and it's the very end of the movie. You know, yeah, what I'm talking about. No, I do um, that is also saying yes, but her problems with alcohol are not going to be so easily solved, right? Uh, and I, I I really found that um, very uh, delicately
1: uh, but confidently handled, uh, and I liked it quite a bit. I see what you're saying there. I still, which I said to you when we first talked about it, I I don't think the acting is terribly well resolved for whatever they're going for here. I just feel like it's a constant distancing mechanism that just left me distance. I never felt involved. And there's a sense of humor to the whole thing that didn't feel like people avoiding their problems at all. It just felt like the movie was a very flip about what it was about.
0: See, I I think that, um, that, that it's, I, I yeah I don't think that's fair at all to call it to call it flip. I okay. think that you can have humor um you, you know call it gallows humor or call it what you want but you can have humor um that maybe helps guide you through the 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 rougher shit that you're going through. And this does get into some rough shit. It's not just alcoholism. This is the other one I was talking about. Yeah. uh about the way that um you know men especially men with you know small men with low self-esteem try to control the women in their lives um th- this is the other one um uh, i don't want to get too much into that because i feel like
1: yeah, that I, part of this pl- plot it,
0: is kind of a surprise for sure it's a development uh yeah so i don't want to get into it too deeply but um i think it handles it handles those things well while also being funny and i think it's i think if you remember correctly from our previous episode, you have not seen Nacho Vigalando's previous work because this is, I I didn't see time crimes, which is probably his biggest one. Weirdly. That's the one I haven't seen, but, uh, with extraterrestrial and with a for apocalypse, um, from, uh, um, from the ABCs of death. Um, that is very much his style. There's a, there's a sort of, Uh, A a gloss to the exteriors of his movies. And I think that's where the arch uh, performances come in. That's where the comedy comes in. Um, But they're really, it's really just a a pretty, pretty casing for something deeper that he's exploring. I think about human relationships. Uh, I think he does a good job of it.
1: Yeah. The one area where I would say, I think the archness works is, the relationship the characters have to the damage that they're doing across the world. Cause we haven't even really explained the basic premise, but there's like a psychic link between, uh, and Hathaway and this monster that shows up in South Korea. Yeah. Uh, and eventually that monster monster does some damage and she is responsible for it to an extent. But in the same way that when you watch the news and, you know, 40 people drown in a flood somewhere or in a building collapse, you know, it's like you feel bad, but there's only so much you can take that in i guess and it yeah
0: and it's hard not to treat it as a spectacle which the movie um uh comments on when Jason Sudeikis' character owns a bar yeah. and as these things start happening right. on the news, his bar starts doing a lot better cuz right. people start hanging out to watch the to have
1: drinks and watch the the news together. It becomes an event. And you hear people cheering on the events as they progress and yeah. So th- yeah. I, I do think there's some interesting stuff in there. Like I said I, I don't like outright hate it. We'll get later to a movie that you loved and I hated. But um, Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is, I just didn't feel it was quite as successful as you do. Uh all right. Well, I
0: uh, agree to disagree. I, I still hope you'd check out extraterrestrial someday. Cause it's, it's really great someday. Um, I like there was one more thing I was going to mention about, uh, Oh, I was going to tell, uh, I stayed for some of the Q and a here. Um, and, uh, Nacho not is a, is a, is a delight. Um, uh, and someone asked, um, uh, someone asked, uh, why did you set the, you know the kaiju part in South Korea of right. all countries, and he and he was like, "It's so cheap." Like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, but then he went on to talk about how it needed to be in a non-white country right. for the for exactly the points that you're that you're making. Um, he needed to set the, the the damage they were causing needed to happen at some place very very different from where yeah, they for are. Sure. Um, anyway, uh, all right, one that you saw but I, and I was going to see, but I didn't is up next. Oh, I didn't know you were going to see it. I had a, uh, oh, yeah, I had no, a I, ticket. Actually. I recall this now. And then I tried to go to the March again and I honestly probably could have done both
1: <laughs> and been there at the same time. Um, it is Alicia Shurshan's and Christian Jimenez's uh, family life. It's a Chilean film that has a very strong premise. It's about this kind of loser dopey guy. doesn't really have anything going on. Doesn't really have any major goals in life. Uh, he, ends up house sitting for an old family friend uh, while he and his family are away on some sort of vacation um and in the process meets a young attractive woman and starts kind of posing as though the house is his and that uh his family has deserted him you know his wife doesn't let him see his kids he creates this whole like kind of sad sack backstory um which i think they realize is such a strong premise that they didn't really think about what else to do with it because once they established that there's a lot of time just killing in this house and they don't really develop the character relationships at all. There's very long extended sex scenes that don't really add much to the story or teach us anything about the way the characters are relating to one another. Uh, you know, it's an 80 minute movie that feels very long and not in a very productive way. Uh, it's very pretty to look at it was shot in four, three, which is very eye catching. Uh, but on the whole, I, you know, it, it was the first film I saw at Sundance and it wasn't the strongest way to start it, I guess.
0: Okay. Um, on to... Uh, and now I lost the... <laughs> front ...list. Uh, yes, yeah, no, one we saw together. Uh, the new um, Francois Ozon film. This is the... Besides Colossal, this is the other film that I saw at Sundance that wasn't a Sundance premiere. Um, but it's uh, the... It takes place in Germany immediately after uh, World War One, and um, it's a small German town and we're sort of given this uh, um, uh, just illustration of a defeated nation um, retreating into some sort of Hardline nationalism that i've I felt kind of resonated given what was going on in America yeah. uh, and while we were at Sundance and is continuing to go on uh today um, but that 's not really what the the story is is about the story is about the the uh, a widow who was living with the parents of her um late uh fiance um who died in the war. I should make that clear. Um, and then a, a, a Frenchman, a hated Frenchman, <laughs> uh, comes to town and starts visiting her fiance's grave. Yeah. Uh, and you know, who is this guy? How did he know? How did he know France? And blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that's what the story is about, or at least the first half. And then, um, it does become a different story of sorts in the
1: second half, but we don't need to get into that <laughs> for sure. Um, this is based on a 1932 Ernst Lubitsch movie that, isn't available on DVD. Not many people have seen, I haven't seen it and I love Lubitsch. Um, but it's one of the rare kind of straightforward dramas he made. And I was going
0: to ask if you'd seen it.
1: No, unfortunately I still haven't. I want to though, but, and I, I think a lot of us were curious what a guy like Francois was on was doing with a Lubitsch film, <laughs> remaking it. Um, but I think it connects a lot to at least the films of his I've seen, which are just the previous three, um, in terms of eventually the story goes on. People have to create certain narratives to, keep up certain illusions, I guess, and to maintain relationships, but it's not, I guess, in a negative way. And I think that connects with a lot of his previous work, which is very connected to ways people present themselves in different environments and how these aren't necessarily, even though they're contradictory, they aren't necessarily like false or, uh, they're negative, I guess, just because they're contradictory.
0: Um, I want to ask why, why didn't this seem, Ozan and Lubitsch seem like, to you,
1: why did they, what do you see as the differences? Well, the films, uh, Ozans I've seen are mostly kind of thrillers in a way.
0: Okay. I guess, but they're also melodramas. Yeah. Uh, but Lou, which mostly made comedies. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you're right. But I, but I guess it's, uh, yeah, I said, okay, now I see what you're saying, but, yeah. uh, I, I think of Ozon as being, um, uh, a classicist classicalist, uh, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would agree with um, that. Um, and, um, something like, so I'm guessing so if you've seen the last three that's the new girlfriend young and beautiful um, and in the house. Okay. Uh and I've um so you haven't seen Under the Sand which was the first Ozon that I saw. Okay. When I was probably 16, I saw it at the uh, at a movie theater when it was when I first got my driver's license and nice. could go to movies on my own and started like really seeing art movies. Uh and I I've, I I've so I've been in love with Ozon since I was 16. Um, uh, but um yeah, it didn't. It didn't seem. No, I, I, I didn't know the Lubitsch film either, um, but
1: it didn't seem like that difficult to. Well, now that jump. I think about it, actually, that idea of presenting yourself as several different people is pretty Lubitschian too. So uh, maybe I need to revisit my uh, <laughs> love of one of my favorite directors. But I, anyway, I thought this was a very fascinating and layered and yeah. emotional and you know, kind of quietly thrilling film. There's not kind of any suspense sequences as there have been in his last few, but there's a lot of suspense, I think in terms of the character decisions and what people are going to do and who they'll choose to be or how they'll choose to present themselves. And
0: yeah, um, there's also, I think, uh, an intentional, um, I don't know what, what the word is, uh, sleight of hand, intentional misleading. Um, okay. I don't know if you saw it either, but I think the, the story of how, uh, um, what's his Adrian, yeah um knows France um, is revealed to be something different than I thought the film was building toward.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I know what you mean. Okay. Um, and that was definitely a moment where I was like, Ozan's really adapting this because this probably wasn't in the 32 <laughs> right. movie, but it ends up not going down that road anyway. But I wonder if Lubitsch might have made the same sort of nods to it knowing Lubitsch.
0: Um, and let me ask you then finally, what did you think of the, cause it's a black and white film. Mostly. Yeah. So I was going to say, what do you think of the use of,
1: of color? I, I liked it cause I couldn't quite get a handle on it. At first it seemed like it was only gonna be the flashbacks and then it wasn't. Um, and it seemed maybe like it was when the characters were coming alive or something, but I don't think it was strictly that either. I,
0: interpreted it as because yeah at first it is just a flashbacks i interpret it as the color comes back when the people who knew france start to feel like he's there again when they're hearing stories and they're playing like playing the violin you know like for months now all when they've thought of france all they've thought of is how sad they are and the fact that, that their loved one was taken from them right but at any point that it starts to feel happy like they have, fi- have happy memories of France again. That's when the color comes back because it's first, it's a the flashback. Then it's the violin. Yeah. then It's, uh, when, uh, Anna takes Adrian to where France proposed to her. Right. I think it's the third one. Um, and then I think very tellingly for most of the second half, there's no color. Yeah. Uh, uh, that was my interpretation of how the color was used. No, that makes
1: sense. Um, I feel like it, the color looked kind of weird though. It was super pretty in black and white, but uh-huh. I feel like the color stuff wasn't that attractive. <laughs> Uh, I guess you're right. right. (laughs) That'd be my only minor issue with it. But uh, Paula Beer, who plays Anna, the main character, is, I think, really exceptional. Um, And I put her down in my IndieWire survey for Sundance feedback as one of the best performances I saw there. Uh, Oh, nice. And, yeah, I just feel like it was a movie that not many people saw, but I'm so glad that it did. It actually comes out in March um, in New York and L.A. and eventually other places, I assume. It's released by Music Box, and their stuff usually goes on Netflix, too. So people have a chance to check it out.
0: Yeah, and if it's music box they'll probably send me a dvd whether i ask one or not but good i'll take it there you go <laughs> um i'd rather have a blu-ray with this one uh yeah they, you know what they have sent me some blu-rays yeah but uh yeah if you come to a battleship retention meetup <laughs> event uh there's a good chance you'll get to take some music box dvds home with you because we seem to get all of them and
1: you should they release great films
0: uh they really do yeah um, and I've definitely held on to the ones that I, that I wanted, uh, the most. So maybe you won't get a copy of Bronze. <laughs> um, okay. So the next one is your favorite, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: You remembered. Yes. Uh, this is David Lauer a ghost story. Um, which if you listen to the preview episode, you'll r- recall that I don't particularly like David Lauer's last two films, uh, ain't them body saints and ain't them dragons Pete's, <laughs> uh, which and now we've got ain't them stories, ghosts, right? Naturally. Uh, I really hope all his titles end up fitting this. If he makes a movie just called like Dave or something one day, it's going to be very disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ain't this movie Dave? Yeah. Uh,
0: You're saying if he remakes the Kevin Klein vehicle, right, Dave, okay.
1: Ain't this remake Dave's <laughs> uh, um, anyway. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought his last few films kind of were trying to fit into a rhythm that he didn't feel naturally. And he was kind of going through motions of making, essentially other people's films and making films that he might want to see other people make, but didn't really have a sense of how to make them himself. This is like completely his own film. This is something that nobody else would ever think to make because it's too, it's far too weird. Um, the basic story is that uh, Casey Affleck and Rudy Mara play this couple. I couldn't tell if they were married. I don't know if the film specifies it. I kind of gather that they were, uh, but they do live together and, They kind of run a small music studio at home, so they spend a lot of time in this Texas house. Uh, Very soon in the movie, Casey Affleck dies in a car accident and then comes back to life as a ghost. But not the ghost you usually see in the movie. He is the complete white sheet, black eye hole ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's just the first thing that starts getting a little odd about this movie, but the movie takes it completely seriously, even though it does let you kind of laugh at it and kind of have some fun with it. But he is given a moment where he can choose to go to the afterlife and he turns left instead and then chooses to just stay in this house and watch Rooney Mara moon, mo- moon, more in his loss <laughs> and, uh, watches her just kind of go about her day. There's huge stretches of this film after the point where he dies, where there's just no dialogue at all. it's just him sitting in this house and her sitting in the house uh, and obviously she can't see him, but he it, it established that he has a physical presence and so he can loosely affect things and he can try to comfort her but not quite get there. And it, It's incredibly moving and from where it goes from there, I don't want to spoil at all, but it takes the notion of a haunted house movie to the furthest extremes you could possibly imagine in terms of the physical space playing an important part in terms of what it would take for... Uh, spiritual being a ghost, if you will, to move on from that environment. Uh, and it's just an incredibly gorgeous moving film that I don't, I mean, you've said before that you're an easy cryer at movies. I don't cry easily. And I definitely teared up during this one. Uh, and yeah, I was just completely blown away that David Lowry had something this, this original in him after making so many, like I said, kind of imi- not so many, he made two movies, uh, kind of imitative movies mm. um, that he had something this kind of striking it. This was also actually shot in four three and, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either, which was kind of a delight when the uh, masking started to move inward on the screen. I was like, this is unusual. Um, <laughs> but it, it's very beautifully shot, and Casey Affleck and Rooney Meyer's performances are really strong, I think much stronger than they were in Ain't the Body Saints. Uh, they have a very definite physical relationship at the beginning that you can tell it's two people who work well together and who are used to each other's bodies in a way, which is something that's hard to get on screen, you know, because relationships between actors have to build very quickly before the movie goes into production but this you really feel a lived in relationship between the two of them so that by the time Casey Affleck dies you can feel kind of his absence even though you know technically he's in the room I tried to look up if he's always under the sheet in the movie because Uh that's something you could easily cheat but I couldn't find any definite answer. so hopefully when the movie actually comes out that will be resolved but yeah it's so far the best movie I've seen of 2017 and I, I mean I hope something tops it but you never know exciting
0: uh speaking of exciting uh you and I are are coming (laughs) in coming to this next one from very different uh reactions this is I would say my third favorite film that I saw at the festival and I think it's your least favorite is that right
1: man I I didn't think to look up exactly least favorite but it probably actually I think it might be scrolling through this real quick that's your family life
0: um uh, well, let's uh, uh, yeah. When, when we did the preview episode, I mentioned I was very much looking forward to the new Alex Ross Perry film, Golden Exits. You mentioned that you weren't so much, but you did see it anyway.
1: Well, I know I was apprehensive. I, I feel like because I loved the color reel, Alex Ross Perry's second movie, and then you know listen to Philip, whatever problems I have with it, it's a very remarkably crafted film, and I think he has a lot of the right inspirations and he has a lot of the right instincts. And so I'm always curious about what he's up to. I just, it's just been a while since one's really worked for me. Uh,
0: so golden exits is, uh, I guess it's technically one of those like interlocking, like inter- interwoven, like tapestry movies, it right? Is. Cause it's yeah. a bunch of people whose lives overlap, but it doesn't seem very interested in playing up that part of it. Like no, it's for not, sure. even though there are tons of coincidences and there's tons of things where characters, are one degree separated from each one one another but never learned that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, there are a couple of Jason Schwartzman's entrances that play into that structure. Where it's like, didn't expect him to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But other than that.
0: Um Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh but really what I liked about it, it's um I found it funny. Um not as funny as Listen up Phil. No. Um It'd be hard to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh but I, I found it funny. And I also found it even even given those last two films he made, I found it remarkably cynical in a way that I am okay with for an hour and a half. Um, because basically it's a movie about people who talk constantly. The movie is just full of people talking and it's everything they say is pretty much bullshit. Um, and not only are they not hearing one another, they're also not looking at themselves. Basically every character from my point of view is interpreting the other characters through the things they hate and hate to and and refuse to acknowledge about themselves.
1: Uh, I think that's true in some parts, especially Mary Lou's Parker scene with, uh, Emily Browning. I think that's, that really comes across.
0: Um, yeah, I was, but I would say all of, um, Lily Ray, Benonelli Tipton's scenes, in which mostly they talk about Mary Louise Parker, <laughs> even though we don't technically realize it's Mary Louise Parker until halfway through the movie. Right. Uh, that they're talking about, um, because that's all like they're like the movie, sort of, the, the characters are like Emily Browning, who's, I guess, I would say the nexus of the movie is mid 20s. Yeah. And then you've got. Lily Rabe, Anneli Tipton, and Jason Schwartzman, who are mid 30s, and you've got Adam Horowitz, Chloe Savini, and Mary Louise Parker, who are mid 40s. And they're all, there are these generational differences that they're all looking, everyone's looking at other generations either ahead of or behind them uh, and projecting what they want to be, don't want to be, were, hated th- that they were onto these other characters uh, and not actually. Uh, not actually enjoying one another's company ever.
1: But there's also this, and this is the part that really bothered me about the film, is that most of the scenes between the women, I think they are just saying what's on their mind and laying out character beats. Like, I I don't see how you can see the scene with uh, Lily Rabe, where she's just talking about how she feels like she hasn't moved further enough in life for the age that she's at and not see that as just purely self-confessional. You're talking about her... I think it's the same with Annalie Tippettin. Uh,
0: yeah. Um, which I learned is pronounced Annalie. Um, all right. I learned that at the Q and a, I had said, Annalie right. up until that point, but I, I learned it, It's pronounced Annalie. Um, but the, her whole, the whole reason she's saying that is because she's really just talking about, um, Gwen, right. Um, Mary Louise Parker's character. You think? Yeah. Cause she spends all day. She's like, I'm saying she's a mid thirties woman right. who spends all day, every day because she's an overworked personal assistant with uh, a woman in her mid forties, mid forties who um, made, who who is single by choice, childless by choice, um, does whatever she wants and yet is a miserable piece of shit most of the time. (laughs) Uh, And I think that's exactly what's, I, I, I think she's talking, maybe she is talking about her fears, but she's really just talking about,
1: she's only talked about it because she's spending all day steeped in Mary Louise Parker's bullshit. Right. Because she's miserable about her own life, not because she's reading misery into Gwen's life.
0: But I've been saying she's looking at Gwen and saying, this person is making the same choices that I've made. I am also single and childless, in my mid thirties. Um, and this person in terms of money and freedom has the things that I want out of that, but is clearly unhappy Uh, and is she's therefore backwards projecting that onto her choices. And I I mean, I I, I, I think you're giving the movie way too much credit. I, I I, I guess I come up with an interpretation and I make everything fit it, Um, (laughs) but uh, that's a being a film critic is right Uh, in some ways.
1: No, but, uh, but this was also more striking to me because the scene revolving around men, they were allowed to kind of bury their feelings and say these kind of sideways things that weren't self-confessional at all, that were generally avoiding whatever they were really going through. And the scenes between the men and the scenes between the women or any scenes involving men and the scenes that were just involving women were so, so differently structured that it didn't seem like just like a gender thing. It seemed, or it did seem like a gender thing, but far too much. Didn't, it was like, uh, okay that Alex Ross Perry didn't have a strong handle on the way women actually relate to one another. And this is probably probably had with the queen of earth too, is that he like found this construction that he'd seen before in the serious Woody Allen movies or in Ingmar Bergman movies that he kind of layered onto it, but didn't have the poetry that the better ones of those filmmakers do and just found this self confessional mode that he assumes women talk in all the time.
0: I guess I don't know that they don't,
1: <laughs> I don't know for sure either, but I would be surprised. All right, so uh, I thought it was really good. Looks good, right? Oh um, yeah, I mean it's not quite as striking, I think, as the last two, but it's the same cinematographer, Sean Price Williams, and that guy knows know. how to frame a shot. Uh,
0: was it shot on? Oh yeah. sixteen millimeter.
1: Yeah, film. Okay. Alex Ross Perry is big on film.
0: Yeah, um, but is it, it is sixteen millimeters? What I'm. Oh, I'm almost
1: positive. Okay, yeah, uh, it
0: looked like it. Alright, um, oh no, I get to Oh my, no, I had four in a row that you didn't see. Oh damn, I'll try Um, to ask questions (laughs) Okay, uh, I was very excited for, um, Brett Haley's new film, The Hero, because his last film, I'll See You in My Dreams, with Blythe Danner, I thought was a delight It was okay. Uh, I I really loved it (laughs) Um, but The Hero is, I don't know if I could even say that it's, it's okay It's, uh, uh, other than having solid performances, you've got Sam Elliott playing a sort of alternate universe version of himself um sam Elliott plays a, uh, an actor named lee hayden who basically had one big
1: uh western role in the late 70s it's even like a similar setup to his name as sam Elliott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: um and now makes most of his money doing uh voiceovers for commercials um so the, the opening scene is him in a recording booth recording uh the 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 narration for a barbecue sauce ad which is something you could very much see very much. Doing. um doing. Uh, but then in pretty much the next scene after that um he finds out he has pancreatic cancer and um he is estranged from his uh wife and his uh daughter his daughter's played by Kristen ritter um his only real friend is his uh drug dealer who used to be an actor uh played by Nick Offerman who is absolutely the best part of the movie um uh, I'll I'll quote um I mentioned uh, Jason Bailey earlier he said if the entire movie had been Sam Elliott and Nick Offerman <laughs> getting high and watching Buster Keaton movies it would be my favorite movie of all that sometimes. sounds pretty solid <laughs> um, and then it, yeah that's that's the best stuff uh and then Sam Elliott starts a Romance with another client of Nick Offerman's played by Laura Prepon. So yes, we get Sam Elliott and Laura Prepon love scenes as we've always wanted. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and I, uh, like I said, the the performances are, are great on their own, but there's so, m- and I think there's some things in the early part about like his life as an actor who was, comfortable he's a, he's a you know he's not happy necessarily you're not fulfilled right. as an artist but he's financially quite comfortable um and i think there's a there there's a um a sort of bittersweet disconnected feeling to the early scenes that i that i liked but i think as it becomes more of a plot and especially as we introduce laura prepon's uh i would say Sardonic pixie dream girl. Um, <laughs> uh, it becomes a little more more false, uh, and then this is just a personal thing for me that maybe soured me on it a little bit. She's supposed to be a stand up. I'm a big fan of stand up comedy. I've seen a lot of stand up comedy in my life. So whenever there's movies um, where stand up it becomes part of the plot, right? Uh, I'm very hard on on it. You know, um, obvious child did it well. Most movies don't. Yeah. Uh, and this one, uh, Oh, it, it's very much like the comedian in that sense, uh, which you still haven't seen, right? I'm not keep avoiding it. You're doing a great <laughs> job. Um, but it's very much like the comedian in that it, act, like for some of the standup scenes, it employs actual standup. So this like okay. Ali Wong and Cameron Esposito are in this movie doing standup and it's like, they're great. And then came right. and Cameron Esposito was like, all right, let me bring up my friend, <laughs> Laura Prepon's character. And then it's Laura Prepon trying to be a comedian it's a different uh, i don't know uh, yeah
1: i wonder how much of that is just the knowledge that she's not and the other people are yeah maybe uh but uh, I, I really wanted
0: to like it but uh mostly mostly couldn't
1: has sam Elliott ever had a lead role before <laughs> like i haven't seen question. every movie he's in but like that's a good question i've never heard of any movie of sam Elliott playing the lead character
0: yeah um for a second all
1: right um you know i'm scrolling through his filmography here he was in a ton of stuff but i feel like his breakout was so late in his career that he was already a supporting character for so long that and then you know the, he's made i think a strong impression the last couple of years especially playing these kind of boyfriend roles in these old people movies like grandma and i'll see you in my dreams he's very good at playing that kind of like yeah. casual dude late into his life uh but in terms of that kind of character carrying a whole movie. I just wonder if that's part of the problem.
0: Uh, maybe, but like I said, Laura Prepon's a bigger <laughs> problem in the movie than, Fair enough. than he is.
1: Do you uh, usually like Laura Prepon? Uh, I guess I don't usually have thoughts on <laughs> Laura Perpun. Well, you probably don't watch Orange is the New Black. Though. I don't watch Orange is okay, the New Black. That's really the only thing I know her from.
0: Yeah, I guess, uh, I don't have many thoughts. All right. All right. All right. Here's a movie that I was skeptical about and it premiered and I was reading on Twitter all these great things about it. excited. I was like, all right, I'm excited. I got a ticket for this first thing in the morning and I ended up really hating it. It's not, I'm not, I'm going to say it's not as my second least favorite, not my least favorite, but I really hated making Blair's directorial debut. I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Uh, which premiered the day of the inauguration and therefore, um, no one could help themselves making jokes about the title. Yeah. Um, right. uh, well, wasn't to, that kind th- of what the movie about? <laughs> See, but the here's what the movie is. Okay. <laughs> and this is again, a personal thing, but I think it should be, I think more people should be bothered by this kind of thing. Cause another movie that I hate, uh, even though I generally like, like other films by this director, but I hate Mike judge's idiocracy. Um, and because I, it, it's because I hate this, the, the movie's attitude of, God, everyone's really dumb and awful, except cool people like you and me, right, viewer? That's how I feel, like it's uh, like a, that It's smug and elitist. And that's exactly the the tone that I get from I Don't Feel at Home
1: in this world. I mean, I haven't seen I Don't Feel at Home in this world, but I will say, in idiocracy to defense, there are a lot of dumb people in the world, and it's okay to feel a little bit smug towards them and maybe that's well, just me. I don't, well, know I don't that feel I, that that's a completely successful movie. I'm glad it exists as a point of reference for various things <laughs> like, uh, saying it has electrolytes and, uh, various other, you know, the, I can't remember the president's name, but the guy Terry Cruz plays, uh, Camacho. Yeah. Yeah. There's just very, I think there's uh, various reference points to that film that I'm glad exist.
0: Uh, and I guess in the same vein, I don't feel at home. I'm going to just call it that. For now There on. you go. Um, when it focuses on, Comedy; it has a really great sort of dry, but sometimes absurd sense of humor uh, that I really like. There's a, there's a bit that could be just a pure, it's just pure parody, which you don't expect out of this movie, but there's a part where they're trying to find, they have a license plate number. Okay. Uh, I didn't tell you the story. Melanie Linsky plays uh, a a character whose house gets robbed and she um, ends up uh, haphazardly recruiting her, loner christian uh like samurai obsessed neighbor played by (laughs) elijah wood to help her like track down her stuff and they end up going in this like sort of accidental and increasingly violent revenge spree but that's not really what they're trying to do okay um and the movie that i described is better than the movie that i actually (laughs) saw pretty good by the way um but there's a part when they have a license plate number and they're trying to find out who it is. Okay. And all they have to do is like Google and then like pay some money <laughs> like <laughs> right. to it. But the film but the, the 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 sequence is shot and cut like it's a hacker thriller. <laughs> uh it's a very funny sequence and there's another part in a mansion where uh an overzealous security guard is going room to room clearing the room like right. with his gun out that just like goes on forever <laughs> and to the point. <laughs> where The other characters just start like having the conversation. You right. keep hearing shouting, <laughs> shout clear. Like that. That's uh, th- those two parts are, are very funny. Um, uh, but I think the overall smugness and then also, uh, now making, uh, I don't know if this comparison is fair, but making Blair, I think is best known as the lead in Jeremy Saulnier's blue ruin. Right um and so it's hard not to compare this movie to to blue ruin Um, i feel like a lot of people were uh yeah and, and both of them are movies that um are dryly and very darkly comic that become increasingly more violent as they go on but i think the thing about blue ruin is that it never loses its empathy and it's a very sad movie okay whereas i don't think that's uh, uh some the the violence here feels too glib and the darkness um ends up making just like turning me off a little bit because it felt it feels self-conscious uh i guess um i don't know i don't want to go into any details but uh it does really bloody right. uh, I, I have to say like there are hints early on uh that this is, movie is gonna be a little uh intense and then it, it, but it's mostly kind of a slow burn and then about 20 minutes before the end the floodgates open and it gets <laughs> really bloody um and uh uh it was it's just not my kind of movie i guess All right. um but it is one of two movies i saw Uh, I I like noting uh, trends at Sundance because I saw three movies that take place in the 1990s. We already talked about one, Golden Exits, even though it never says the year. Um, Yeah, probably. I'm guessing around 96. That was my guess. Um, uh, I saw three movies that take place in the 1990s. I also saw two different movies in which something happens that is sudden and violent and a character's reaction is to immediately start vomiting. All right. (laughs) Uh, And I don't feel at home is, is one of them. We'll get to the other one, the other one later. uh, If I remember to point that out. All right, but on to my actual least favorite movie of the year uh, of Sundance, and it's the one that I went into the most skeptical and and was proved right, Uh, Michelle Morgan's L.A. Times. Now, I did see most of this movie. Oh, that's right. Okay, so you can talk a little bit.
1: Yeah, I had to leave early to go and get in line for the ghost story, which I'm glad I did, because uh, this was the only press screening that started late. They have a very rigid press screening schedule at Sundance, and they're always on time. Yeah, this was the one that started late and the one I needed to start on time. (laughs) <laughs> and it did not, uh, which was too bad. Um, cause I was enjoying it slightly more than you, but I certainly see your strong objections to it because it is supremely annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's just,
0: uh, a, a movie that is <sighs> the fact I, I, I would be, I think I would be less turned off by it. I'm not saying I would like it, but I would be less by tur- turned off by it if it weren't for the name. Because the name is right. very much saying, "Look at me! I'm going to be a Los Angeles movie." Right. But it's such a superficial and awfully ju- often just wrong uh, oh, yeah. Los Angeles movie that it um, really it really turned me off. These characters live in a the they live on the East Side, but in the East Side that has already been gentrified for them before they right. move to it. They live in a complete complete uh, bubble um, in which everyone. Um, makes a uh uh above decent uh, amount of money it seems even though Michelle Morgan's character pointedly doesn't have a job the entire time <laughs> um although I guess yeah
1: she also doesn't have her own place so all right <laughs> but in
0: fairness <laughs> well, to but, Michelle Morgan I should have called that
1: up yeah but uh, her long-term boyfriend is a successful creative TV show yeah yeah um, yeah so she's living off of him before yeah. they break up which is kind of the inciting incident of the whole thing yeah and her
0: her best friend is uh uh, interior decorator, I guess, um, is what she does. Um, sure. Uh, and yeah, then there's another character who's an actor and there's, and then there's, Oh God, there's the, I forgot about the prostitute character,
1: <laughs> oh. but I don't know. There's something kind of fascinating about the movie to be that. Well, very clear to me, Michelle Morgan, who wrote direct and starred in it, wanted to play this type of character who is like kind of Wit Stillman esque, kind of creation of this very self-centered and very, uh, but narcissistic in a, in a way that's kind of blinding to any real problems she could be experiencing. She just creates problems for herself and is delighted that she's dealing with them, I guess. Um, is that a fair way to put it? Uh, yeah.
0: I mean, I, um, I think there's another level of her wanting the people in her life to be happy on her terms. Yeah. Um, that, uh, um, I don't know. Who
1: who did you, did you compare it to, to someone? I mentioned Witt Stillman. I I think think girls is also a fair comparison. There's some,
0: I thought of, and I'm not sure if you were a fan of this show. I can't remember. Not, but I thought of Blair Waldorf from gossip girl. I've never seen gossip. Um, yeah, uh, watch the first season of Gossip Girl. Okay. Everyone should watch the first season of Gossip Girl. And then quit. Uh, and then you can you can
1: quit. I watched all five years, but uh, you can stop after the first season. Um, I mean, there's also kind of just like a general socialite from the 30s kind of type from screwball comedies or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, my point is that I thought there was something kind of charming about the fact that she wanted to play this type of character and create this whole environment for herself to do so and how much delight she was taking in being on screen, despite the fact that the dialogue was like, just not up to par with the kind of movies you want to make. And there's a sense in which the movie is trying to be something so much more than it is. And it's very narrow vision of Los Angeles and of even the culture it's depicting. It's a very narrow vision of that culture. Yeah. And I don't know, there's something kind of interesting about that. That is still doesn't make for a very good movie, but when you're watching, you know, 17 movies in four days, you start to <laughs> latch onto weird, subversive, uh, accidental things in movies that are still kind of charming. In I, weird ways. I like that.
0: I feel like I probably started to get annoyed more easily. Well, fair enough uh, by them, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's kind of. I, I, I compared it on Twitter to like um, a modern day Los Angeles singles, but bad. Right. And I don't <laughs> even like singles that much. Uh, I, li- I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. I liked it when I was younger. Maybe you, maybe it wouldn't hold up. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, uh, yeah, maybe there is something especially annoying to me about the, the Los Angeles stuff because I've, uh, it, it feels like it's people who have lived in Los Angeles about three years and think they have it figured out. Whereas I've lived here, you have to live, maybe you have to get over a hump of living in Los Angeles long enough to realize you're never going to figure it out all the way. <laughs> you know like i've been here 12 years and i'm like uh the thing i love increasingly about los angeles is that there's so much more to discover that i'll i can live here my whole life and like uh not not know it all because it's such a, a weird sprawling varied place um and so to try to fit it into little cliches um doesn't go well especially when they're like cliches like the idea that everyone is working on a screenplay which is like right it was like 30 years ago that cliche was worn out um uh, i don't like that the one joke i did like and i called this out in my review i don't know if you even caught it but every time they make reference to a restaurant the name of the restaurant is something and something yeah i did enjoy that (laughs) yeah that is
1: how all restaurants are named here i think uh spine and marrow was the one that stood out (laughs) to me the most yeah i think there was also one that was like lettuce and tomato or something yeah (laughs) Yeah, it has some good jokes in there. But then it latches on to weird things like apparently there's classes of people that just do nothing but host game nights. And maybe <laughs> this is a real thing that she's latching on to, but uh I, I have certainly have not experienced that myself.
0: Uh yeah, I can I, I I can see that. But didn't the the I feel like 10 years ago the OC
1: already did like Well, um, that might be I never watched the uh, OC. Oh, you got
0: to get on the Josh Schwartz train, man. <laughs> You're missing all the Josh Schwartz shows. Um the actors, um, the, the best friend character, we didn't tell you the actors are, uh, Jorma Tacconi is the, that's
1: a good guess for how to pronounce Boyfriend.
0: Yeah. Ex-boyfriend. Uh, but the best friend is Dree Hemingway. Yeah. Uh, of whom I am a fan. Um, um, uh, uh even though the last thing I saw in, uh, and I mentioned this at the uh, two weeks ago on our preview, uh, was at the, at AFI Fest, it was called Live Cargo and it was terrible. <laughs> oh, I hated it. Um, but, uh, she was in listen up Philip and, and, uh, she was in while we're young, which I didn't see actually. I don't remember her listen up Philip or while we're young
1: actually, but,
0: um, well, I don't know. I I don't remember her specifically in listen up Philip either because there's like 80 women her age in that movie. That's kind of part (laughs) of the point, uh, part of the story of the movie. Um, but, uh, I, 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 really like her. Um, uh, and I hope to see her in more stuff. Okay uh next up is landline the other uh the second 90 1990s set uh movie that i saw and the most overtly 1990s in a way that kind like of this. started to uh, wear on me uh i mean as someone who was a teenager in the 1990s i like a lot of the music in the movie because of it you know i like uh the, your your PJ Harvey and your, uh, the breeders and Do stuff they like have that. Some somewhat deep cuts. Um, no. The, okay. Well, <laughs> I guess, I don't know. The breeders, they didn't use last splash on the bleeder breeders. They used, uh, driving on nine, which, so I don't know if that's, uh, okay. I think that's one of the great albums in the nineties. So I'm not sure how other people relate to those songs, but I think driving on nine is a great song. But yeah, with PJ Harvey, they used like the PJ Harvey hit from 95 okay. or whatever. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, you say deep cuts and I guess I'm thinking I'm coming at it from my point of view. Right. Like, you no, know, these are exactly the songs I was listening to, but no, they're not, it's not like Ace of Base or anything. Okay. It's, it's, it's what would, would it have, uh, what would have at the time been called alternative rock. Okay. <laughs> That's what they use. Um, uh, and of course there's also reference, there's more than one reference to must see TV and there's, yeah, there, there's definitely a little,
1: too Did, much of the 90s stuff. Do people say it's the 90s a lot? <laughs> no, they don't do that. Well, they then that's not out. accurate at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because people
0: were constantly, yeah, they were definitely pointing out that it was the 90s um, uh, all the time. Um, but uh, Landline is, oh, so it's from Gillian Robespierre who directed Obvious Child, um, which was a very, uh, I would say, comparatively a much more focused dramedy. This one is, is uh, has more sprawl to it which is not a complaint i would say it's a more it's a more ambitious movie in many ways as well it's just not as successful but there's enough going on that i liked i would say i liked it more than disliked it um and so there's enough going on to keep me interested in what julian robius Spear uh does does next um but the the story in as much as the story is important like there's not there's not a plot there's not like you know obvious child there's As um, glib as it is to refer to it as the abortion comedy, it does it is able to boil down to like the fact that she's getting an abortion is the driving, uh, you know, the, the the narrative driver of the movie. Um, whereas landline has, it's, it's a, it's a family. So you've got John Turturro and Nidi Falco as the parents and you've got Jenny Slade as the oldest, the older daughter who is, uh, moved out and living with her, um, fiance played by the other Duplass, um, <laughs> Jay, <laughs> Jay Duplass. Uh, and then you've got the younger sister, um, played by an actress I'd never seen before, but who, um, is definitely one to watch. Uh, I want to say her name is Abby Quinn. Is that right? Yep. That's correct. Uh, yeah, she is, terrific definitely keep an eye uh on her um and uh so basically i guess in as much as there's a story it's that um jenny slate starts a to have an affair start cheating on her fiance with uh a college friend played by finn whitrock who's usually better than this but here he's uh, that's too bad yeah he's he's kind of
1: just a prop um kind of felt that way about jake lacy in uh obvious child too you should like him a lot more
0: yeah maybe that's true I like him in obvious child but I see what you're saying Um, and uh, she then decides to take some time off from her fiance moves back home uh, into the middle of some drama because she comes back home at the same time that her younger sister has discovered that their father chapter is also having an affair yeah Um, And they struggle with whether or not to tell, to confront him or to tell their mother or whatever. And there's a bunch of other stuff going on too. Um, uh, Yeah, there's, there's lots of little moments and it is overall a successful film, but I think the, it's not going to benefit from comparisons to its predecessor. Um, And also the 90s stuff is a little, a little heavy. All right. All right. Uh, what is next? Is it, is it your time? Oh, it's, thank it God. it's your time. Turn, turn <laughs>
1: uh, the next movie is lemon, which is pull up my notes. Uh, the directorial debut, I think of, uh, Janishka, I think is how you pronounce it. Bravo. Who is, I think a, from stand, understanding, a rather noteworthy short filmmaker. Okay. Uh, but she and her husband, Brett Gelman co-wrote this film. He stars in it. Oh, I didn't uh, realize they they were, um, they were married neither did i until the q and a came out i'm a uh, big breadelman fan well you might like this movie more than i did uh it has a very distinct sensibility that is kind of in that school of comedy that is more strange than funny it's you know looking for characters to say the oddest thing or is have a, an odd line reading or an odd camera setup or just a, some sort of odd behavior at every moment that The only consistency is that unpredictability which i i mean my central thing with the film is that i don't devalue it i think it's perfectly valid way of operating and a lot of people seem to like it at the premiere notably the laughs seem to be coming from the rear section of the theater where the reserve seats were and not so much (laughs) towards the front where all of us audience members were but uh I assume that other people took to it. I, I don't know for sure. I think it kind of outstranged me. Um, but Brett Allen plays this guy who's kind of going through a midlife crisis. He's an actor who's just teaching theater classes in Los Angeles. Uh, his wife, played by Judy Greer, who I was very excited to see because I love Judy Greer, mm-hmm. um, is. What was I, that? I'm a big fan uh, of her. Sorry. Uh, is kind of in the process of leaving him. I think their relationship is actually the strongest part. And the further it gets away from that, the less. All the behavior starts to make sense for me. I guess there's a whole drama with his family. Um, there's, of course, drama in his drama class. Uh, I think amusingly he he does favor one student over the other, despite the fact that the student he favors is a much worse actor, which is slightly amusing. Uh, but I don't know. For the most part, like I said, it just kind of outstranged me, and I, I don't really have a strong hold on it. But maybe other people would like it. The cast is certainly impressive besides Gelman and Judy Greer. You also have Michael Sarah, Neil Long, Fred Melamed, friend of the show, Fred Melamed. Oh yeah. Uh, Gillian Jacobs, Rhea Perlman, Martin Starr, Megan Mullally, and Jeff Garland. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a really impressive cast. Was,
0: was Megan Mullally there? No, she was
1: not. That's too bad because I, uh, Nick Offerman was there though. Yeah, I was, I, I, yeah. I, I, I didn't, should have mentioned
0: cause, um, I was going to call out which ones I was at the mirror of golden exits. I was at the, the yeah. mirror uh, and it was the place to be watch out uh, to see cool celebs. Cause I saw <laughs> Offerman. Yeah. I saw Dinklage. He was uh, nice. waiting for the urinal behind me. Um, I saw uh, Gail Garcia Bernal. All right. And then didn't even realize until the movie was over that one row behind me was Michael Showalter. Oh, crazy. Uh, And that's not even mentioning the cast of Golden Exits, who were great. So uh, that was a big, this is a big uh, celebrity sighting uh, (laughs) uh, thing uh, for me. Um, Also, Pierce Brosnan was on my flight home. Whoa. That's a big
1: one. That's the biggest. uh, I was, imagine he was in first class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, at least you weren't flying frontier again this year. So you actually, oh God, <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Never again. Uh, um, anyway, sorry. that's all I got to say about that.
0: Okay. Well, uh, speaking of kind of weird comedy, not that weird. Um, but, uh, offbeat comedy, a movie that I was not, I don't, I don't know if we even mentioned it last, uh, on the preview. We, did. we did mention it cause I had no plans to see this movie. Um, but, uh, I yeah, found out I
1: definitely wanted to, and I'm mad I couldn't.
0: Uh, yeah, I, well, I found out after I'd seen my first movie of the night that like some of my, uh, friends were seeing another one. So I was like, I'll go to this. And so I saw, uh, the little hours directed by Jeff Baina or Baina. I'm not sure how you say his name. Um, and I, um, it is, uh, uh, a retelling of well it's it's based on the decameron there are a 100 stories in the decameron right. i think <laughs> um uh it's based specifically on the story that's also in pasolini's the decameron about the um convent where a fugitive agrees to oh, right. hide out and be the uh you know farmhand or whatever around the convent as long as he pretends to be uh, a deaf mute Right, Um, So he can hide out from the people uh, out in the countryside who are trying to kill him. And then he ends up, because the nuns think he's deaf and mute, he ends up becoming uh, at first a repository for all their bullshit and then someone they just (laughs) use for sex. (laughs) Um, And uh, the thing that I think I really like about the movie that I think caused some people to devalue it is the fact that the character you, you're you've got a comedy who's who here you've got al uh, allison brie and molly shannon and kate mccucci um and aubrey plaza and you've got john c Riley and nick offerman and lauren weedman and dave franco and adam pally um you've got this awesome uh comedy cast and the language of the movie is in modern day Patois, whatever you want to say, <laughs> um, vernacular, in I the guess. the parlance was, of our times. Uh, in the parlance of our times. Uh, and I think that treated some people to, to, or, or, led some people to treat it as, uh, the, the complaint I saw in multiple reviews and tweets was uh, feature length sketch mm. comedy. Um, because it does kind of have the feel of something that, that, um, Monty Python would have done or something right. that does, it could be a drunk history. um, Uh, and then if you compare it to other features that have done similar things, you come, you, you you don't come up with the best stuff. You come up with year one and your highness and those uh, are neither one of those is a good movie. Last Um, temptation of
1: Christ. If you really want to go further (laughs) out, but I mean, but this is specifically
0: a comedy. Uh, but really what I think Jeff Bain is doing is he's taking a story that's nearly 700 years old. Right. Um, and that, because it's written in the language of 700 years ago, um, probably would feel pretty stuffy if you were to read it or, or have the dialogue read the way that the characters actually talked in the, in the story. But the Decameron was written in, the, the, the Florentine vernacular of the time. right? And so I think this is an attempt to take something very old and breathe the life into it that would have been in, there at the time and realize that this thing that's now considered part of antiquity and like, uh, you know, a revered piece of literature or whatever was actually a super body and risque comedy slash satire, like religious sexual satire.
1: That's also kind of what Pasolini did with
0: it, yeah. for that matter. Yeah, but, which... I, but I'm saying, even, I, I think even that to a modern audience, Pasolini would probably seem stuffy. Oh, I think now, but probably not in the seventies. I mean, that's like, it's a wild film, man. No, yeah, but, but that's what I'm saying is like every once in a while, maybe you have to like, uh, bring these things up to date. Yeah. For you sure. know what I'm saying? Um, and there is just, you know, it is funny to see like the, you know, the text on screen is very clear. This is 1347 right. or whatever year, 1378. I can't remember. I wrote it down. It's in, it's in the view, I think. Um, uh, and then to have, Aubrey Plaza and Kate Mccucci the just like sort of gossiping and bitching like <laughs> sorority girls. Oh, uh, I really uh, want to see this movie. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun and it does. I, I don't want to give too much away, but it does. Um, it commits, and it goes pretty nuts. So in it's in its third act, there's uh, probably
1: not as many shots of full on erections as there are in Pasolini, <laughs> but, no, uh, can't uh, no. have it all.
0: Yeah, but it, it, it does go pretty nuts. Um, I didn't even mention Fred Armisen plays all the, right. the, the Bishop. He has a great, there's a scene where he's, um, uh, confronting one of the nuns about all the, her transgressions. And she's, and he's like reading the list of sins. And one of them, he's like, so he's like laying with a woman eating blood. And then he stops and he just like, looks at John C. Ryan, and He's like, do you think I've ever said or written eating blood before? <laughs> uh, it's pretty funny. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm glad I saw The Little Hours, and I don't think, based on the few reviews that I've seen, I don't think it's getting as much respect as it deserves. It did just get
1: distribution, though, which I was very happy to see. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, all right, I think you're up next. I am. Uh. Next is Manifesto, which I was very excited to see. It is a film starring almost exclusively Kate Blanchett, essentially reciting all these artistic and political manifestos from throughout history. They're not uh, explicitly identified on screen, which I would have preferred that they were, um, because they're hardly like natural anyway. It's a very exceedingly arch setup um, yeah. of her just in these different environments, different kind of excuses for her to recite it. One is like a news broadcast another is in a classroom. Um, can one, I ask you yeah.
0: if you saw, and I know we're both fans of Los Angeles plays itself, yes. which is a movie that, Constantly tells you what right. clips you're seeing. Did you see his more recent movie? The thoughts, the ones no, we had, it's good. And it's interesting, but it like to the point where it feels like, what are you trying to show off? Like it doesn't <laughs> say and yeah. Like sometimes it'll be like the, you know, the, the, what's the, The Laurel and Hardy stairs, the piano staircase would have like, okay, I know what that is, Yeah. but there's all kinds of stuff that I didn't recognize uh, that it kind of, it kind of frustrated me. I wish that it would had, uh, that would tell you what the clips were from.
1: Yeah. So in addition to that, I also didn't really understand like the entire set about the film. My assumption going is that Cate Blanchett would be playing the people who wrote these things originally or something related to them. But the fact that sh- they don't seem to have a direct relationship to what she's saying, maybe wonder if I was just missing something or if they just didn't think it through. And were just trying to think of ways to keep the audience interested by throwing in these different presentational ways. Like I said, one, she's a newscaster talking to herself as a weather reporter, just kind of going back and forth on this manifesto but it didn't seem that setup didn't relate at all to what they're talking about. And then in another where she's a school teacher, uh, relating the cinematic manifesto, I didn't know if he was trying to say that, like, this is so elementary you can teach it to children or if I, I don't know, I didn't really see the connection at all. So as much fun as it is, to see Cate Blanchett move between these different environments. I just, and as you know, Thrilling as it is to hear the words of these manifestos, which are often very electrifying and rousing in their own way, you know the particular relationship that they're supposed to have to their presentational styles never really came across to me. Um, I will say that it's very well accomplished. You know the production design and one there's like this immense office which they might have used CGI extensions in some regard, but hmm. it, it just on a production design level, it's all these like, kind of stacked office floors that are slightly off from one another. So you'll have one floor and then the one above it will be slightly further back. So it's almost like stairs going up to these different Hmm. office environments. And it's very, like I said, eye catching, but I just didn't, whatever mode they were trying to use to express a larger thing through it. I don't know if it was there at all.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, on to my number two, uh, favorite film of the festival.
1: This Uh, would probably be a number five or six.
0: Wow. Um, Dee Reese's uh, Mudbound. Yeah. Uh,
1: why, don't, why, why don't you tell me why it's not higher? <laughs> no, I, I don't want to start off on a, a bad note with it. I think it's a really exceptional film in a lot of ways. Um, it's an adaptation of Hillary Jordan's, I want to say, like 2008 novel. Um, it's the story of this family who goes to live on this farm, and through various circumstances, they have to actually live like on the farm, not in a proper house. Uh, and in the process, they come into direct contact with the tenant farmers, this black family that work for them. But you know, this is the takes is during world war II. This isn't slavery times or anything. They're yeah. an independent people and they have their they're, own lives. They're but, tenants. Yeah. That's what I thought I said that. Sorry.
0: Um, uh, yeah, but I, 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 mean, I don't know that it's even right to say that they work for them. They work a parcel of their land for themselves and then pay rent. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess like I think the, the part that they're farming on their land, they're responsible for planting, harvesting and reaping and selling and everything and they just uh pay in the form of rent to the white family. That maybe. is that's my understanding
1: of yeah. how that economy works. Well, this is prob this is part of the my confusion is I wasn't sure the degree to which uh, Jason Clark is the patriarch of the white family was taking advantage of this family and the extent to which the things he was asking them were part of their daily routine, because the way the black Patriarch cap kind of reacts to his envir- his, these requests is that they're intrusive, but they're not unexpected. Mm-hmm. You know, the first night they come in, he's like, storm's coming. We got to unload this cart. Let's go. Yeah. And without a second thought, he hops in the truck. So I, I know there's an yeah, extent, even though he's, he and his family haven't even finished dinner yeah exactly yeah i know there's an extent to which the film is recognizing that uh jason clark's character henry is assuming a racist legacy uh, that goes all the way back to slavery in terms of the ownership he feels over hap but i i don't think their economies were so cleanly separated i guess i I feel like whatever happened his family were harvesting were part of the general farms harvest
0: okay i yeah I, I, I don't know i i felt differently but i didn't know yeah i, I don't know <laughs> for sure either um uh but i i i liked this movie because it it eventually does have more of a plot, but it takes its time getting there in fact the um the, the 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 minivan I uh, took back to the, the the shuttle I took back to the airport right. from Park City. Uh, there was one of the guy on my trip, and I was I was telling him he was like, what did you see?" I was like, "Oh, I loved Mudbound." And he was like, "Oh, I walked out half an hour in." Oh wow! Um, and I, because I think some people just want a story, yeah. And there's and, and the it's it's not really until. Jason Clark's younger brother, played by Garrett Hedlund, yeah. and uh Happ and Florence's uh, oldest son, played by Jason Mitchell, both come home from World War II, uh, that the the story, I guess, really kicks in. And that's almost halfway through the movie.
1: Yeah, I happens. mean, it, it does begin in Meteor Res, as they say. And yeah. I think with the very kind of a scene where you can tell there, I mean, there's overt conflict, but you can tell there's a lot of underlying conflict as well. Um, that, yeah. I, I had kind of a tr- problem with the beginning that way. I felt like it was kind of a cheap device for as strong as it is. Otherwise, I didn't feel there was a strong need to start there.
0: Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I'm generally suspicious of uh, the in media res uh, beginnings. But I did. Um, I guess I did like um, that. There are things you don't know that are going on. Obviously right. that's the point of that, but there, are, but, but you, um, I guess when it, when it comes back to the opening scene, <laughs> I'm trying to to dance around this, but there are things you've learned just as that opening scene is happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, about what's going on there. And so it made it feel fresh again, I
1: guess. Yeah. I just feel like it would have been so much stronger if we didn't know that scene was coming and it got to that scene. it played out like we see in the beginning but with everything we already know has happened. I feel like they at least should have gone back and played that scene out completely when they came back to it instead of skipping past all the business that, Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It just felt when it get, it's such a huge dramatic turn in the film that it, it really deserved more time. I think spent on it. Um, uh, uh, uh I'll agree with you. Um, okay. <laughs> but, uh, the other thing we haven't
0: talked about that I, that I think is that I really liked, even though some of the film's detractors say, uh, point this as a, as a problem, but the, um, the multiple voiceovers,
1: I generally like that too. More so than most people, I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, the, the number one sort of complaint I heard about people who had a problem with that is that it, uh, feels too much like it's just being adapted straight from a novel. Like right. it feels like a, a novelistic setup or method. Um, whereas what I liked about it is that it turns, the different stories you've got, you've got six.
1: Yeah.
0: Basically you've, you've got Jason Clark, Carrie Mulligan, as yeah. the Patriarch, as the Patriarch and matriarch of the white family. You've got Hap Morgan and Mary J. Blige. Who's amazing. Yeah, by the she's way, great. she's uh, so great as, um, the, the mother and father of the black family. And then you've got Garrett Headland and you've got Jason Mitchell. So you've essentially yeah. got and Basically what I, what I likened it to in my review is that he's, that um drees now has uh, she has a um an orchestra of six different sections at that point yeah and she can play she can play the pieces on their own or together in different combinations um and so
1: it turns the movie into kind of a narrative symphony yeah i could see that i mean in addition to the fact that the language itself is just a pleasure to listen to mm-hmm. um and i don't think it's too redundant the voiceover i think we generally learn new things from it and it adds to the scenes in a positive way. And, you know, I can see how it's maybe a little overused, but not too much by any stretch. Um, and
0: then another complaint that I actually kind of do, uh, agree with is it turns anyone other than those six characters into a one dimensional character, like Jonathan Banks character is just there to be a vile racist (laughs) yes you don't learn much about him
1: but i think the way it develops that character is so effective because he starts out as kind of a joke and he's just kind of like a kooky old man racist that you've seen a thousand movies and the movie lets you laugh at him and lets you laugh at his outdated even for that time uh mindset and then slowly develops that into something much more that i think is very well structured also
0: a reminder that it's even today in 2017 it's not as outdated as we thought it was well uh, you know what i mean yeah
1: outdated in there's the, nazis the out ideal.
0: there <laughs> there's nazis out there and we can't seem to punch all of them fast enough um but uh
1: have you been watching those remixes as much as i have By the so way?
0: so much it's so, so satisfying much. yeah um uh yeah because they're all over twitter but then i also um you know caught up when i got back from sundance caught up on like the metal blogs that i read and i'm like oh there's a whole other subset (laughs) set like specifically to metal songs uh it's it's pretty great um yeah i could watch him getting punched uh all day long all right uh europe uh i you're you're up not europe (laughs) but europe i talked about my nun movie now it's time for your nun movie
1: yeah like lousy with nuns this year Uh, this one is called novitiate I think I said it right this time, <laughs> uh, it's written, directed by Margaret Betts. I, I don't know if it's her debut film, but I think it is. Uh, but it has an excellent cast. Uh, Margaret Qualley from The Leftovers, uh, Diana Agron from Glee and Julian Nicholson and Melissa Leo from a thousand other things. Uh, in addition to a lot of other very the, talented Diana women. Agron, my friend
0: from having walked past right. her on the sidewalk once. David's best friend. Uh,
1: and it's about Margaret Qualley plays this woman who enters the nunhood at the age of about 17 um, after having not grown up in a Catholic family at all, but just really taken to it as sort of a, an escape. And it's about her navigating that whole culture at, from an outsider, but also because she's an outsider, I guess feeling that calling all the stronger, you know, some of the women, the young women she's coming up with in her kind of class. I can't remember the, Term they use for the group of women that are coming up together in the nunhood, but is it novitiate? It is not. Okay. <laughs> that would be convenient. Uh, but you know, some of the other, one of the girls, her parents essentially forced her being there because they felt that uh, every family should "quote unquote" like sacrifice one girl to the nunhood, and she's oh. the only girl in her family. So you know, generally, some of the girls are just there because they feel they had no choice. Um, but Margaret Qualley's character really strongly feels it. And the movie takes her very seriously. And I was really impressed with the degree to which the movie takes the Catholic faith, especially pre Vatican two Catholic faith seriously, mm-hmm. because this takes place kind of just, just before. And just as Vatican two is getting implemented and actually it's perception of Vatican two is very different than what it would have assumed from a modern film. And it really hones in on the effect that Vatican two had on nuns lives, which I had never really looked that much into and never really thought about. But, it essentially not only did they not have to wear like the classic dun uniform anymore, but it stripped them of any special status that they used to have in the church. Um oh. and so the after Vatican two, they were no longer considered kind of a privileged class of people within the Catholic Church. They were no different than a Sunday churchgoer. Um and so that effect on the older woman in the church, particularly Melissa Leo's character, is really profound and understandably so when you've devoted yourself completely to this one idea of who you are and this one identity, and suddenly that's stripped away. Um, Melissa Leo, as people who have been watching films lately might know, has a tendency to maybe overact a little. And uh, as the head nun of a very strict order of nuns, she certainly goes all the way with it. Uh, but it, generally, this is a very Involving kind of melodramatic look at, uh, a, like I said, a strict nun order. I, I, it was very thrilling. It kind of starts and ends awkwardly with some voiceover in the beginning, and then a character decision at the end that I don't feel is totally earned. But it's, like I said, very earnest in how it approaches the struggles of coming up with the nunhood. Where in addition to the strictness of the Catholic church, you have the strictness of the way women are supposed to relate to other people. And it gets to a point where Margaret Qualley realizes she hasn't actually touched anybody in months, if not years. Mm. Um, and she starts to really hunger for that sense of intimacy, but because she is a woman in the Catholic church and coming up in the nunhood, there's no way for her to get that, you know, even a hug between women in this order is considered out of line. Um, So it's it's very, very powerful, exceedingly well acted. Um, And yeah, I think in spite of the kind of awkward start and I think a rather noteworthy film.
0: Uh, I'll say this. I am generally more often than not. I'm a fan of Melissa Leo's overacting. Okay, (laughs) but there are definitely
1: exceptions. Uh, I'm definitely not a fan of the fighter. Um, Oh, you're up again. I am with uh, this is probably my third or fourth favorite film of the festival. Uh, it was, uh, Gustin Dye defas, Gustin, Dustin guy defas person to person. Uh, this is his second feature. He's also made a ton of shorts. I haven't seen his first feature, which I think is called bad fever, uh, but which I'm looking forward to catching now. This involves as far as I can map it out, I think five distinct stories, three of which overlap with each other, two of which overlap with each other. And one of which doesn't overlap with any of the others. Um, so it, it, it like Golden X. It takes place in New York, has various strands of stories, but doesn't make any attempt to resolve all of them together. But is just a delight start to finish. Um, in one of them, Michael Sarah plays the newspaper reporter who's training a new reporter played by Abby Jacobson in the midst of this murder mystery they're trying to investigate and abby jacobson hilariously doesn't seem to recognize that the reporter job comes with asking people a lot of questions and she spends most of their section just nervous and awkwardly trying to navigate the uh newspaper life and realizing that's not at all for her and michael Sarah essentially just trying to mentor her as a way to sleep with her constantly pushing her into these environments in which she's completely uncomfortable and abby jacobson plays that discomfort rather well uh, the murder mystery is his wife is suspected of murdering her husband. The wife is played by uh, Michaela Watkins, who's wow. quite good and who isn't given like her own story within the film, but she intersects with these various people in very uh, amusing ways. And Michaela Watkins is good kind of playing the edge of drama and comedy. And then they all come into contact with this uh, watch shop owner played by Philip Baker Hall, who's best friends with Isaiah Wicklock Jr., which just to see the two of them interact is worth the price of admission alone and then in a completely separate set of stories, uh, this guy named Benny Cooper Smith, who's not a professional actor as far as I know, but who is a very strong screen presence is trying to track down, uh, a rare Charlie Parker record. And this guy's defrauding him and he has to chase him all over town. And there kind of chases, uh, very amusingly handled that they gone exceedingly long, uh, bike chase scene bicycling around Brooklyn, uh, which just takes forever because none of them are particularly good cyclists. There's casual <laughs> cyclists, but they just keep riding because they have no other way of, uh, hunting each other down. Um, and then his roommate, uh, played by George sample, the uh, is trying to dodge his ex-girlfriend's brother after his, that brother finds out that George sample posted nudes of his girlfriend online. And, this, uh, like I said, this I thought of Golden Exits at least in retrospect as I was thinking about person to person because it has that kind of New York interlocking stories mm-hmm. kind of set up, and it's also shot in sixteen millimeter, and it has a similar relationship that I think Alex Ross Perry has a technology where person to person tries to avoid it as much as possible, but it doesn't go as far as Alex Ross Perry in terms of like setting in a completely different time period, but the internet is especially. Essentially, like a suspicious force that no one can quite <laughs> understand in this film. Uh, and, you know, Ga- du- Dustin Guy Defa is very keyed into these very kind of tactile environments of record shops and bookshops and watch shops, these kind of rundown places that barely seem to exist, and very suspicious of new technology without kind of trying to remove himself entirely from the world in which he lives. So I, I thought he handled that better than Mr. Alex Rossberry. <laughs> Um, and then in an entirely different section, uh, Tavi Govinson, I think you say her name. Yeah. Um, who I mainly know as an actress, but apparently like a huge fashion designer. Um, she plays this kind of teenager who's dealing with her. I think she rose to notoriety as a fashion blog, like a teenage fashion blogger. Yeah, which I don't know her that way at all. But when I saw, she was in Enough Said, when I saw it with a friend of yeah. mine, she was like, "That's Tubby Govenson. I love her." <laughs> and I was like, "If you say so." Um, but she plays this teenager who's kind of questioning her sexuality and dealing with a lot of that. And like I said, these stories aren't directly related, but they share a kind of uh, a spiritual kinship and a sense of humor and a sense of liveliness about them and it's a very, I I think, uh, Nick Pinkerton described it as a very full film. It's 84 minutes, but it's very Hmm. full of life and gives a very sense, uh, perspective of Brooklyn that I don't think I'd quite seen before. You know, some people coming out of it complained it was too quirky. I didn't find that to be true at all. I thought it was very, very lively and very witty and very charming and, uh, very pretty.
0: All right. Um, on to my third and final 90s set All film, right. uh from directors Maya Forbes and Wallace Wolodarski, The Polka King, uh, which is uh, a fictionalized retelling of a documentary from a few years ago called The Man Who Would Be Polka King, which I didn't see, um, in which Jack Black stars as uh, real-life Pennsylvania polka star slash convicted villain ponzi scheme uh, g- uh, guy ponzi scheme guy that's what you call it um <laughs> uh um jan Levon, uh, is his name um and uh i it's it's an exceedingly slight film that i can't really it, it seems like it's the kind of thing that like in a year and a half or so when it's available on the plane <laughs> like go ahead watch the polka king it's um, it does not set its sights very high. Um, it is first and foremost concerned with being a Jack black vehicle comedy. Mm. Um, uh, and th- to the point where as Jan levon like hurts, like he, like he bankrupts people. He's like a, right. You know, he's like a low rent Bernie Madoff <laughs> in this nineties, like Pennsylvania, Catholic, Polish pol- polka community. <laughs> um, uh, but the movie doesn't it seems to go out of its way to not deal with his own consequences because it doesn't want you to stop laughing
1: at Jack Black's funny accent. So it, it's, I did mean, you see Nacho Libre. No, I never did. Okay. Cause I love Nacho Libre and this sounds kind of like that.
0: Okay. Um, uh the 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 rest of the cast is also you know we got a uh, jason schwartzman again uh showing up as um jan's uh best friend and clarinetist in his band um jenny slate again shows up as as his wife uh jackie weaver plays her mother um uh, and uh it, it's yeah it, it, it's not it was it's not a boring 90 minutes at any point but it's like there are better things you could probably be doing with your time. It's, it's, it's very light. Um, Jack, like gets, gets to do some, some funny stuff. Um, as does Jason, Jason Schwartzman. Um, and then moving on to, uh, the first film that I saw, uh, opening night, a movie that was super excited about, um, and didn't manage to disappoint me but didn't quite live up to what I was hoping it would be yeah. uh, directed by Kirsten Tan it's a film called Popeye P-O-P space A-Y-E <laughs> which is even more confusing because the elephant in the movie that's named Popeye the captions refer to him as right <laughs> yeah I saw that as, as <laughs> yeah. like the sailor <laughs> yeah Popeye the sailor man like spell that so I'm not even sure why this why this spelling if it's a copyright thing maybe maybe um, do they have to spell it that way um uh, uh you know getting sued by the estate of the whoever created popeye <laughs> um or by the estate of the lunatic who started popeye's chicken i don't know, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard about that guy no uh, he was nuts no. Of, yeah. in a in a great way um anyway but this is the story of a man who uh is a uh, nearing retirement age he grew up poor in a in a in a small uh northern thailand town but town but uh moved to bangkok bangkok and became a um moderately successful like essentially like an upper middle class guy now uh architect and now he's facing this time in his life where the first building major building he ever uh designed is being has been bought and is being uh demolished and his wife uh has lost any um, romantic or sexual uh, attraction to him, and he's just sort of generally feeling inadequate. Uh, and then one day on the streets when he's left left the office at, at, at lunch and just decided to walk around, uh, he meets this elephant that he immediately re- recognizes as the pet elephant he had when he was a kid <laughs> uh, in the countryside. How um, does he recognize this elephant? Uh, it, it's not... Um, does
1: it have any distinguishing marks? No, there's no...
0: Like, that's not... Um, there, there's no distinguishing marks, but then he whistles the theme to "Papa the Sailor Man," ah. and the elephant like blows in response. Right. And it's like apparently this is something they did is when when he was a kid. Um, so uh, he decides uh, he at first he tries to bring the elephant back home to live in his yard, and his wife is having none of that. Uh, so he decides to take the elephant across Thailand back to the town where he grew up so that it can live on his uh uncle's on his uncle's land, which is where the elephant lived um when when they were kids. So it's a bit, it's essentially it's a it's a boy and his dog road trip movie, except it's a middle aged man and his and his elephant road trip movie, but it's a just you know, super episodic right. um journey that is um it is. It, 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 it's. It's good. It's well done. Um, there are interesting characters throughout. Great performances throughout. The elephant itself is adorable. Um, but I did feel kind of let down that it was so by the numbers. Like the 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 catharsis and the and the revelations that are reached at the end um, are exactly the ones that you could have right. guessed that it was going toward. Uh, and it just. It, yeah, it seemed like it. Uh, I don't know. It it laid some unexpected elements um, and unexpected elephants um, (laughs) onto a recognizable blueprint, um, which is not necessarily a bad way to make a movie. Plenty of good movies. Some of my favorite movies uh, have done that, um, but there just wasn't enough to make this stand out. Still, I would recommend it if you like elephants, because (laughs) uh,
1: how often do you get to say that?
0: uh, (laughs) Yeah, this elephant is adorable. And here's the story I'll tell the guy next to me in some ways talked throughout the movie which is generally a bad thing but the only thing he ever talked about was how cute the elephant was and so I was kind of okay with it every time the elephant would do something cute he'd go oh or he'd go that's so cute oh man Um, but real quick yeah uh, um then there's one part where the elephant gets away from the, the guy and the local police in this small town are going to, are going to shoot the elephant. They think it's a threat. They're going to shoot it. So like aiming the rifle and the guy next to me, he goes, fucking asshole. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> he was really into it. He got the message of that movie. You know, yeah. I, I forgot to mention with the golden exits, I was sitting next to a guy who took audience distraction techniques to a whole new level he was like interacting with the movie (laughs) anytime something happened that he liked in the movie which could be the title font or uh-huh. a famous person showing up, he just kind of bob his head, like, all right, this is <laughs> happening. And then anytime a character did like a notable gesture, he would imitate that gesture as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I eventually moved seats once enough people walked out.
0: Uh, oh, that's funny, people. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see any walkouts at the premiere, but the. Well, it the, is the premiere. The two women behind me did not like yeah. golden exits. Uh, this a should, premiere but, and a PNI screener, very different environments um, for the walkout. Oh, okay. There's a. Um, but here's what i did do at the at the hero i didn't mention the hero before i mentioned cameron esposito was very funny yeah in the movie okay i see a lot or i used to i haven't done that much anymore but i used to go to a lot of standard comedy shows and so when cameron esposito like finished her set and brought up the next person i almost started clapping <laughs> just as a muscle memory yeah just as a reflex totally. i started like
1: uh, uh <laughs> clapping all right so um yeah, that's that's Popeye. Uh, I think so you're... they never learned about feminism. That was the thing that you had like <laughs> latched onto in the preview episode. Uh,
0: yeah, because it, it was in the initial right. um uh uh IMDB description. And no, I wouldn't <laughs> say they learn about uh, okay. feminism, but they do. I will say this. Um, it seems like a family friendly story, like a larger than life or yeah, whatever. Totally. Um, it's definitely an R rated movie. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, yeah, but there is, uh, I will say, oh, I, I pointed this out in my review and I, something, one thing I actually did really like about it is that it jumps, um, back and forth in time. Like the, um, there's the, the storyline of the journey and there's also the days leading up to him finding the elephant and leaving on the journey. Okay. And it tells those two stories sort of more or less concurrently, although oh, okay. it, it focuses more on the journey in the second half. But um, <clears throat> but there's a really cool moment where his... Um, his wife is um, sort of leaving the house in a cab after she's like decided she's had enough of him and his elephant and is crying. And there's a song playing on the cab radio. And then it cuts to a scene that's technically happening like two or three days later where he's drunk at this small town karaoke bar, singing the same song Mm. in karaoke. It's a nice moment.
1: (laughs) You're up. Uh, Next up is, also, my third or fourth, depending on where I put person to person, or where I put this, depending on how you look at that, uh, favorite film. Which you're supposed to be the documentary guy, but I saw two documentaries, and I you saw a whole lot of nothing. I saw none. Uh, and this is one of those documentaries. It's called Tokyo Idols, and it is completely crazy. Uh, I I went to Tokyo in October, and I did not catch on to the Tokyo Idol culture. Um, there are parent, it's these mostly groups but sometimes they're individuals these female pop singers who aren't you know quite musical artists yet they don't have record contracts or anything but they perform almost nightly and they do a live stream twice a day to these groups of very small but very dedicated and mostly uh middle-aged male fans Uh uh-huh and they're apparently the movie says 10,000 different young women who identify as these idols ranging in age from 10 to about 20 and they have these extremely devoted male fan bases and it is just as creepy as it sounds and it is the director Kyoko Miyake just takes it all as red. she just follows around one of these idols and the most prominent male fan that she has and just tries to figure out what's going on with all of it and it's completely fascinating start to top uh the shows themselves you know they're often for a handful of people but all the people in the crowd know all the moves in all the words the songs themselves are sometimes geared towards these fans and trying to build them up and tell them that they're awesome for following them around oh wow uh and there's definitely you know there's not not a sexual component to it but the film kind of sums it up i think well in terms of The handshake, which is the only acceptable form of touching between the fans and the performers, which the handshake, I guess, especially in Japanese culture, has more of a sexual history than does a friendly history. It's modern context as a friendly gesture is, like I said, much more recent, like from the 50s onward. Hmm. Um, So by allowing that handshake, they can acknowledge some sort of contact, but still maintain a, a sense of distance and quote unquote honor. While giving the men a taste of what they're there for, which isn't entirely what they're there for. That's what's interesting. I think most about the film is that the fans that these girls accumulate are mostly guys who, you know, have stuck to the straight and narrow. They have office jobs for one reason or another relationships haven't worked out for them. You know, some of them came close to being married at one point, but didn't quite work out. And these pop shows are like their one final chance at like self-expression and freedom. And so they are genuinely into the music and into the lifestyle, but it's also pretty creepy. Yeah. Um. And it's just, I, I think, a very a non-judgmental but very clear-eyed look at both sides of the lifestyle, both the extremely hard work that the women put into this. Like I said, they perform almost nightly, which are they're very high-energy shows and very pa- fast-paced music, and so it's a lot of work that they put into it, but the end result is very often not, you know, that they're going to be signed to a label or anything. One group has 300 members. They hold annual elections for the top 80 who will be featured stars for the following year. And these elections are held in these giant stadiums where like hundreds, maybe thousands of people attend to watch. It's this whole insane culture that I had no idea existed at all. Um, But yeah, I, I really hope this gets distribution because it's one of the more fascinating kind of straightforward documentaries that, i've seen in quite some time
0: i can't wait to to see it yeah um and i'm that documentary guy i just don't (laughs) hate them like you do but apparently you don't uh all right my final one um uh, this was one of my most anticipated and i would say it's probably my number four um uh of, of the fest is called walking out it is the third film uh from uh the brothers alex and andrew smith who made their debut at sundance back in 2002 i think with uh the slaughter rule which is an early uh pre-super famous uh ryan gosling um movie uh that also has uh david morse and cleo duvall and a very tiny role from a then unknown um amy adams oh. um uh, and it is a terrific movie. I would say one of the best movies of the aughts. Probably I can't remember if I put it on my top ten list when we did that episode. I have to go back to that. Um, uh, and then they made a second movie, um, called Winter in the Blood, which is not as good but is weirder. Um, and now this movie, the third movie, Walking Out. Is uh, more competently made, not as weird and not as deep as the Slaughter Rule, but still a, a, a really terrific movie. Um, I, I I almost made reference to the, Re- the Revenant earlier. Um, my uh, my my Twitter review of Walking Out is it's like if the Revenant were good. Right. Um, uh, the story is that uh, Matt Bomer plays a um, sort of uh, taciturn, emotionally closed off, um, divorced father who lives uh, in, uh, rural Montana. Um, I guess all of my, most of Montana is pretty rural, (laughs) I guess, but there is, uh, you know, there's, there's Butte and there's Livingston, uh, which is where certain women was set. this is my two years in a row seeing Montana set (laughs) movies at Sundance. Um, uh, and once a year, his, his son, now 14 year old son, Uh, put by josh wiggins uh come who lives now in texas with his mother comes to spend a, a weekend a long weekend with him and go hunting that's what they do they go hunting yeah um matt bomer is very much a hunter um and josh wiggins sort of does it because it's what his dad you can tell he's not really into it but um matt bomer's got a big hunt plan this this time he's been tracking this moose he wants his son to bag his first uh big game um and so they go deep and high into the snowy wooded mountains, uh, to find this moose. Um, things don't go as expected about halfway through the movie. Um, there's a pretty drastic incident that leaves both of them, um, injured. And then that's what the title comes in. They have to walk out, uh, uh back down to, um, low enough to where they can get to where they parked their car. So it's, um, yeah, it's a father-son bonding movie that turns into a survival movie. Uh but it's 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 very it's very well done. <clears throat> um it, it takes a couple of uh, unexpected turns and the ones that are expected, I think it it does uh very well. Um but mostly um it's what I'm fascinated about, I, I now that there are 3 of them, I would like to I would love to see a like a triple feature or something where people can look at Alex and Andrew Smith because they are montana filmmakers all of their hmm. films are set in montana and are shot in montana and they clearly have something to say about the people in that state most specifically the men in that state all of their all of their lead characters are men who are um in most ways very typically masculine right but also in some ways feel uh apart from the group hmm. um uh, you know, it's you know, Ryan Gosling's character is a football player, but he's also, uh, in, in Slaughter Rule, is he's also the son of a drunk who committed suicide. Um, the lead in Winter in the Blood is uh, uh, a Native American farmer, but is who is also a drunk. Um, <laughs> and uh, this one is the most keeps the most under attack, but you know, you have to you're led to wonder like why Matt Bomer, who seems like a very capable guy. Um, and is obviously, he looks like Matt Bomer. He's a very handsome right. guy. Like, why is he such a loner? Why is he divorced? Like there's, uh, you know, there's some questions going on under there. So, um, yeah, uh, Alexander Smith cl- clearly have thoughts on the men of Montana <laughs> and all of their films. This one probably the most. So are beautiful. Um, the director uh, or the director of photography's name, uh, I think is Josh McCullen, um, and the, there's just, uh, I mean, not that he didn't have a lot to work with, but you know, he, there's just like beautiful snowy vistas, right. uh, throughout this movie. It's an absolutely gorgeous, uh, it's an absolutely gorgeous, uh, advertisement for Montana, except for in the second half when there's, uh, you know, a lot of blood, <laughs> um, uh, but maybe for some kind of people that would work uh, as well. Um, uh, I, I will say this is, um, I, mean, I said all their films focus on men but this one has almost no female speaking parts at all hmm. and for the first time in their movies has almost no Native American speaking parts at all which is a big part of their first two movies hmm. in, Slaughter, in Slaughter Rule Ryan Gosling's best friend um, is Native American and multiple scenes take place on the reservation uh, Winter in the Blood is very much you know, about like, the lead character is Native American uh, here you've got one woman and one Native American and they're both the same uh, luckily they're played by lily gladstone nice. uh from from certain women um but it's a very brief uh, uh brief brief turn uh, unfortunately but uh yeah overall it's a really solid movie i still don't know if anyone's picked it up
1: um which is uh a, a shame uh, i hope people get to see it it feels like the kind of marketplace angle of sundance was much calmer this year
0: yeah with the exception of the big sick which i think sold yeah. for 12 million there hasn't been a lot of big splashes
1: Yeah, or it doesn't feel as kind of feverish as uh, last year. Maybe it's because everyone's
0: still, you know, or Fox Searchlight is still nursing their wounds from Breath (laughs) of the Nation. Everyone else is uh, trying not to make the same mistake. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, My last two, first one is the second documentary I saw, World Without End, uh, parentheses, No Reported Incidents, which is the latest film from Jim Cohen. Uh, who got on my radar through his narrative feature museum hours, but he's mainly a documentary and he makes these kind of impressionistic slice of life uh, documentaries about various locations. Uh, counting his last film was kind of set all over where he's traveling is parts in Moscow, parts in Brooklyn, parts. I can't remember where—is all over the place, but this one is just focused on this tiny uh, English town called South end on sea. Um, and it's a, a very, I, I think a very good I think it's better than counting because it's so focused. He just goes around from place to place talking to a couple of people, but mostly just kind of capturing the environments, people going about their business, and the way the town looks at night, and it's very beautifully shot. And, you know, if you go for that kind of thing, which I often do, uh, I I think you'll quite like it, as I did. Uh, Grasshopper Films has it for distribution, so hopefully it'll receive, it's only an hour long, so I can't imagine it'll get any kind of major art house release, but it'll probably, you know, show up online at some point. And so, like I said, if you're into that kind of slice of life stuff as I am, uh, I definitely recommend it. Kind of like uh Frederick Wiseman. That's the comparison I keep looking for. Um, mm-hmm. and then the last film I have is the yellow birds, uh, directed by Alexander Moores, co-written by David Lowry. Um, he had quite a presence at the festival this year. Yeah. Uh, and this is more of the David Lowry I didn't like. Um, it, it's good in its own way. It's uh, an Iraq war, war movie about these two young soldiers played by Ty Sheridan, and Alden Ehrenreich, who are kind of mentoring one another along in their first year or so of deployment, just kind of trying to figure out the ropes, trying to figure out their personal limits. Uh, they both have very different reasons for being in the army, and but they form a, a pretty tight bond. And I think it's very strong at the start when it's them trying to figure all this out. And they're such exceptionally good actors. I think Ty Sheridan, especially I've been so surprised that he's maintained as good as he was at like 11 or whatever in the tree of life that he's still such a strong actor, Um, which you don't often see that kind of consistency. But Alden Ehrenreich is as solid as he's been in the last few movies. Um, But then it starts to intrude on this whole plot where Ty Sheridan's gone missing and the film Moves in and out of different time periods, between Alden Eric being back home and then showing pieces of their deployment. Um, that is supposed to keep it like a mystery of how he went missing, and the eventual reveal of it, I guess, is interesting enough to justify that decision. That kind of cheap narrative device, but it's only like just barely interesting enough, and it starts to kind of evolve in kind of a sub apocalypse now. Look at uh, their sergeant is this kind of Bible quoting, you know, maniac soldier, which is not my favorite device in a war movie. Uh, so once it, the further it gets into that, the, the rougher it is, uh, Jennifer Aniston, Tony Collette are also in there as the moms back home, which I think Jennifer Aniston plays a good beat of she and her husband kind of encouraged Ty Sheridan to go into the military. But once he's there, you know, it's kind of scary that he could, mm-hmm go missing and then once he does she is very good at playing the uncertainty of that um but like i said just it it never quite focuses enough on the human experience of going to war or sending your kid to war and keeps intruding on this i think somewhat ridiculous plot that never quite justifies itself so it's a little uneven but the acting's really strong um and yeah it's it's a decent enough movie i guess all right um
0: i want to wrap up by uh mentioning you were better at mentioning it going along but um when movies do have distribution yeah um so a ghost story is at twenty four. yeah i think you, you mentioned um uh, amazon has landline um uh this one i didn't even realize until i looked it up just now but popeye has been picked up by kino yep. lorber i didn't realize that uh netflix has berlin syndrome streaming they also have i don't feel at home but they already did before oh, it premiered okay. <laughs> um uh, which is sort of similar to Call Me By Your Name, which Sony Pictures Classic yeah. uh, bought before it had screened, uh, I think, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, and then The Orchard has Hero, and then the theatrical for Berlin Syndrome is someone called Vertical. I don't know Vertical as a distributor. But, I don't think um, I do either. Yeah. Uh, but that's some, so rights are split between Netflix and vertical yeah, Berlin that, syndrome. They do that a lot. Um, I think those are the main ones that we are aware of. Uh, right. But then you
1: mentioned, uh, a couple world, of, them. yeah, world without end in yeah. France. All oh, right. Who has France? Uh, music box. That's oh, right. That's right. And colossal has distribution, I think through draft house. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. um, so yeah, uh,
0: this is a, a fun Sundance. So you looking forward to next year?
1: Yes, very much so. Like I said, I was a little uncertain going into this, but I, I feel like there was even so many more movies that I missed out on that sounded super exciting. So yeah, I, I think the festival's vibrance is very apparent to me. I, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff coming through there.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great time. Um, I very much like being there the first five days. Yeah, um, that's when all the excitement is. But also, I wonder if like if you went like the last five days after the you in the buzz on everything and they'd added more pni screenings right. and stuff like maybe you could leave having seen more of the probably uh, uh, of the stuff you wanted to and, and also there's less attendance the last five days but um there is something to that atmosphere of, of that you know the first weekend and uh everyone being there and uh and my favorite place which is the the lobby and bar at the Doubletree, which is I like squatters grill myself. Is it a <laughs> grill? I can't remember. I think it's squatters roadhouse. Okay. I think is what even it's even better. Yeah. Which you were at three times. I was at just, oh, once. yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. But, um, I just, I mean, cause there's the, um, you know, the, as you know, I'm telling, I'm telling the listeners at this point, uh, the press and industry screenings all happen in one yeah. little area that's sort of its own mini festival yeah in a way and so um the double tree bar right there um becomes uh, a place where people like us tend to be a lot uh and there's you know uh reliable wi-fi and you can sit there and have a uh low alcohol content beer thanks <laughs> thanks utah um uh, and and get your writing done and feel like you're uh you know uh, a part of a phalanx of uh, <laughs> brave uh, movie bloggers, so uh, brave, we <laughs> weathering the storm, literally, yeah, uh, to be out there on the front lines, uh, reporting back to people that they should check out Berlin Syndrome and avoid L. A. Times. <laughs> uh, all right, any any last thoughts? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, thanks for uh, doing this. Hopefully, we'll, sure thing. you'll be back on the show before next year. <laughs> yeah. All right, um, you can find us, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, I've been talking way too much. This is what I need Tyler for, (coughs) Um, or that's why we need a third person for these. yeah. And you're feeling sick. This is a disaster here. Um, you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. Uh, you can email us at David at battleship Uh, Tyler battleship com for Tyler. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Davy pretension, follow Tyler at Tyler pretension. He's got another podcast called more than one lesson. I technically have one called, Hey, watch this <laughs> when I get back into TV in a year. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that's that Scott where, where can people find you
1: well I forgot to mention that I'm covering the festival technically for Criterion Cast which is where all my reviews are going uh, I have reviews of Tokyo Tokyo Idols uh, Mudbound and Golden Exit so far more to come as of I, today uh, I've got all 14 of mine I up. know you actually write during the festival which I don't know how you, well you see a couple of fewer movies than I yeah, do yeah that's that's how yeah I, I'm like I'll see the movies I'll write later and uh, I'm kind of glad I do because I'm so exhausted during the festival. I can't imagine how you turn out anything coherent. Um, but uh, yeah, so my reviews will be going up in the next week or so. Probably get them all done. And then on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow and at the American Cinematheque's blog, uh, movies on the big screen.
0: Alright. Um, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye.